Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Today, in the middle of Greece, stands Kolonos Hill. It is an unremarkable height. A fit adult can walk up to the hilltop in just a minute or two. Once there, the view is nice enough. On one hand, mountains rear up like ramparts until they reach the cloudy peaks of Mount Calidromo. On the other hand, a wide alluvial plain rolls out to the sea, some six or seven kilometers away. Cutting across this plain, in fact, almost at the foot of the hill itself, is Motorway 1, the Greek national highway that connects the capital of Athens to the northern metropolis of Thessaloniki. Yet, 2,500 years ago, this little hill was the setting for the most famous last stand in history. The remnants of about 1,000 Greek warriors from the city-states of Thebes, Thespiae, and most famously Sparta retreated to the hilltop and there were surrounded by the Persian army. The Greeks fought their enemies with their spears, their swords, their fists, even their teeth, until at last the Persians shot down every last one of them with volleys of arrows. In 1939, excavations by the Greek archaeologist Spiridon Marinatos uncovered large numbers of arrowheads of a distinctively Persian design on and around Kolonos Hill. This last stand was the final act of a three-day battle that took place in the Pass of Thermopylae in the late summer of 480 BCE. The Greeks who died were originally part of a force of some 8,000 men led by the Spartan king Leonidas. The invading army they were trying to stop was from the Persian Empire, the superpower of the day. It was an immense force. The Greek historian Herodotus totaled it at an astounding and, frankly, unbelievable 1.7 million men. Modern estimates give it a still impressive 100,000 to 300,000 men. Its soldiers came not just from Persia itself, but from across what is now the Middle East, Afghanistan, and even India. Xerxes, the great king of Persia, led this army in person, and his goal was the total conquest of Greece. The Battle of Thermopylae was unquestionably a Persian victory. After annihilating Leonidas's force and seizing control of the pass, the Persian army overran central Greece. Within a week, it swept down into Attica and captured Athens. However, the Persians' triumph was destined to be brief. Just a month after Thermopylae, the Greek navy inflicted a crushing defeat on the Persian fleet in the narrow waters off the island of Salamis. This defeat forced great King Xerxes to return to Persia, but he left his army to complete the conquest. A year later, the Greeks beat this army at a hard-fought engagement at Plataea in the broad plains of Boeotia. At around the same time, the Greek navy wiped out the Persian navy at Mykal, off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Salamis, Plataea, and Mykal saved Greece from subjugation and domination by the Persians. In doing so, these battles set the course of history. Much the same can be said of the Battle of Marathon, a feat of Athenian arms that had thwarted another Persian invasion ten years earlier. 
but it is Thermopylae that people know if they know anything at all about the ancient wars between the Greeks and the Persians. For, after defeating the Persians, the Greeks, particularly the Spartans, transformed the defeat at Thermopylae into a legend of heroic self-sacrifice that paved the way for ultimate victory. In this way, it became the platonic ideal of the last stand against impossible odds. In the 25 centuries since, the Thermopylae legend has become part of the cultural heritage of the West. It has been the subject of paintings and novels, poems and movies. The legend has also proven astonishingly useful and malleable. It has been taken up for strikingly different ends by people as varied as French revolutionaries, Texan rebels, British imperialists, and Nazis. The wars between the Greeks and the Persians of 490 to 479 BCE are the subject of the work that inaugurates the Western historical tradition, the histories of Herodotus. Unfortunately, we know very little about Herodotus himself, apart from a scattering of references in ancient sources, and above all, what can be gleaned from his own words. He was born around the time of the Persian Wars in Halicarnassus, a Greek city on the Aegean coast of Asia Minor. Today, it is the resort town of Bodrum in Turkey. At some point, Herodotus decided to make the wars his life's work. He traveled throughout the Greek world and the Near East, researching and gathering information. Somehow, he gained access to some original documents relating to the wars, both Greek and Persian. But his main sources were other Greeks who had taken part in the great events themselves, knew someone who had, or were in touch with an oral tradition. Then, around 430 BCE, Herodotus wrote up the results of what he called his inquiry, or in Greek, historia. Here are its opening lines. Herodotus of Halicarnassus here displays his inquiry, so that human achievements may not be forgotten in time, and great and marvelous deeds, some displayed by Greeks, some by barbarians, may not be without their glory, and especially to show why the two peoples fought with each other. Herodotus's work is monumental. My penguin copy of the histories is well over 600 pages long. It is also an intellectual revolution. Before Herodotus, there were certainly records of historical events. But Herodotus was aiming for something much more ambitious than a mere record or chronicle. As he states right at the outset of his work, he wants to accomplish two goals. First, he hopes to preserve famous deeds. Remarkably, he is determined to do this for both the Greeks and the Persians. By barbarians, he simply means those who did not speak Greek. Second, and more importantly, he seeks to discover how and why the two peoples had come to fight their great wars. In other words, Herodotus invented the fundamental concern of all historians, explaining causation, why and how events happened. It is for this reason that Herodotus enjoys the title first granted him by the first-century Roman statesman, orator, and philosopher Cicero, father of history. Herodotus's histories is also a cracking good read. It's full of tales of daring-do and battles. Herodotus invented the genre of the battle narrative. Interspersed with these exciting stories are meditations on the biggest historical and philosophical questions. Moreover, Herodotus did not confine himself to discussing just political and military events. He had a broad, almost encyclopedic view of his chosen subject. 
He therefore also discusses such disparate topics as animals, geography, folklore, and religion. Herodotus's expansiveness and enthusiasm have, however, opened him up to criticism. Many of the incidents he describes are far-fetched. Details from them can be difficult or even impossible to verify. At worst, his stories seem entirely fantastical or unbelievable. These features of the histories have led some to dub Herodotus not the father of history, but the father of lies. His most extreme critics even claim that he made it all up, that he invented not history, but historical fiction. Modern historians and classicists reject this extreme position. While acknowledging that Herodotus gets many things wrong, they point out that when his work is tested against the other available ancient evidence, he is more often right. Even more importantly, they laud him for capturing the essential messiness and complexity of the past. Herodotus is, and always will be, the indispensable primary source for the conflicts between the Greeks and the Persians. As John Lazenby, one of the most eminent scholars of Greek warfare, states, the Persian wars without Herodotus would not so much be Hamlet without the prince as Hamlet without Shakespeare. I would now like to follow Herodotus's lead and turn my attention to the two peoples who fought against each other. In the 5th century BCE, the Greeks were scattered across a wide swath of the ancient world, stretching from the northern shores of the Black Sea down to the Mediterranean coast of Asia Minor, across the hundreds of islands of the Aegean Sea to mainland Greece itself, then westwards to southern Italy and as far away as modern-day Nice and Marseille in southern France. This Greek world was characterized by political disunity and diversity. The Greeks were divided into as many as 1,500 autonomous or semi-autonomous communities, polis in ancient Greek, or as we call them today, city-states. Their inhabitants saw themselves as Athenians or Spartans, Samians or Syracusans first, as Greeks only and very distantly second. In fact, there was at the time no single name for Greece or Greeks. The name Hellas then only meant an area south of the Spurkaios, a river near the Pass of Thermopylae. Each city-state or polis typically consisted of a dominant city, town, or population center in its surrounding rural territory. Each fiercely guarded its independence against all of the others. Warfare was therefore a more or less permanent feature of ancient Greek life. In the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, war broke out in the Greek world nearly two out of every three years. Moreover, when they waged war, Greeks almost always fought other Greeks. The study of ancient Greek warfare was revolutionized in 1989 with the appearance of Victor Davis Hansen's The Western Way of War. In it, Hansen brilliantly anatomizes the nature, the characteristics, and above all the experience of classical Greek battle. Following his lead, a flood of new research has greatly expanded our understanding of these subjects. Sometime in the late 8th or early 7th century BCE, the Greeks began to develop a distinctive way of fighting that involved heavily armored infantrymen who were arrayed in dense formations and who closed with their enemies to fight in hand-to-hand combat. The new-style Greek infantryman was called the Hopelite. His most important, 
most distinctive and most distinguishing piece of equipment was his shield, the aspis or hoplon. The aspis was about one meter or three feet in diameter and weighed around seven kilograms or 16 pounds. It had a solid core of wood covered by a thin sheet of bronze. Hopelight carried his shield strapped to his left forearm and controlled it with his left hand by a hand grip. The shield's shape was round and extremely concave. In profile, it resembled an immense dish. The shape of the shield was of utmost importance in classical Greek warfare. We need to keep it in mind. In addition to his shield, the Hopelight wore other protective gear. His head was covered by a helmet. From 700 to 500 BCE, this was most commonly the famous Corinthian helmet. This helmet provided almost complete protection to the face and head. However, it had only relatively small eyeslits and completely lacked holes for the ears. It therefore drastically limited the Hopelight's vision and hearing. The helmet also typically sported a horsehair crest. The crest added some protection from head blows, but its main function was ornamental. It made the Hopelight look taller and fiercer. The Hopelight's most important piece of body armor was his breastplate, or cuirass. Covering the entire torso, it consisted of front and back sheets of bronze that were connected at the shoulders. Above the hips, the breastplate flared outwards, creating a bell shape, which aided the Hopelight's movements. To protect his lower legs, the Hopelight wore a set of greaves, which were made from flexible bronze and snapped onto the calves without the need for straps. In terms of offensive arms, the Hopelight's most important weapon by far was his spear. The spear was a thrusting weapon, used purely for stabbing in hand-to-hand combat. It was thrown only in extremis. It had a bronze or iron spearhead and a bronze butt spike, which the Greeks called the sarotor, or lizard sticker. The spear shaft was made from cornel, ash, or similar hardwood. From tip to butt, the spear was about 2.5 meters, or 8 feet in length, and 2.5 centimeters, or 1 inch in diameter. As a backup for his spear, the Hopelight had a short sword that was usually little more than a dagger. He would use it only if his spear broke. The Hopelight's suite of defensive and offensive equipment, what the Greeks called his panoply, represented a considerable physical burden. Because they were made from wood, no aspis from the classical period has survived to be excavated by archaeologists. By contrast, several bronze cuirasses have been found. However, during the 2,500 years between their fabrication and their unearthing, corrosion and damage has worn them down, making precise calculations of their weight impossible. Despite these obstacles, modern scholars have gone to great lengths to estimate the total weight of arms and armor carried by the Greek Hopelite. They have come up with a range of 23 to 32 kilograms, or 50 to over 70 pounds. Modern soldiers consider the higher figure close to the maximum carrying capacity in armed combat. However, the average ancient Greek man was much smaller and lighter than his modern counterpart, about 165 centimeters, or 5.5 feet in height, and 68 kilograms, or 150 pounds in weight. Hopelight arms and armor therefore taxed him to his limits. Additionally, wars in Greece were normally fought in the summer, 
when temperatures could reach 40 degrees centigrade. Under such conditions, the Hope Light helmet and breastplate acted as solar collectors. Both also appeared to lack padding of any kind. Their wearers must have found the bronze closer to their skin and on their hair almost unbearably hot. The ancient Greeks had numerous sayings that referred to the burden of the hopelite panoply. Perhaps the most famous is the supposedly customary farewell of Spartan mothers to their sons. Sintai i epitai, with it or on it. The it referred to the hopelite shield. The shield was so heavy that when hopelites were defeated in battle, they usually discarded it in an order to flee more quickly. On the other hand, the shield's dish shape also made it perfect for carrying off dead bodies. Spartan mothers were therefore telling their sons to come back victorious or dead, but not as cowards without shields. Hopelite arms and armor were so burdensome that the Greeks gradually modified them to make them lighter and more comfortable. The greaves seemed to have been abandoned altogether. Although they did not represent an unreasonable extra weight, Greaves might have been particularly burdensome on campaign and in combat because they chafed when running or even walking. In terms of the helmet, the Corinthian type appeared to fall out of favor after 500 BCE to be replaced by models that offered better sight and hearing and not least more comfort, such as the open-faced Boeotian helmet. The Greek hopelites even modified that centerpiece of their body armor, the bronze cuirass, after 600 BCE, it appeared that more and more hopelites abandoned metal in favor of leather or even stiffened linen body armor. But the essentials of the hopelite panoply, some type of body armor, and especially the shield, remained constant. The shield was perhaps the greatest burden of all. In combat, the hopelite had to hold its 7 kilogram weight at chest height, using only the strength of his left arm. The Greeks of the Poles chose to bear the burdens of shield and armor because they made possible a distinctive and devastatingly effective style of warfare. In a pitched battle, Hopelites did not fight as individuals. Instead, they formed up into a densely packed formation called the Phalanx. They customarily lined up eight ranks deep, but sometimes more. The men of the first three ranks could reach the enemy with their spears. The men of the remaining ranks held their spears up in part to help deflect incoming missiles. The phalanx formation was only possible because of the Hopelite's shield. Three-foot diameter of the aspis allowed each Hopelite to protect his left side and also the right side of his comrades standing to his left. The front rank of the phalanx therefore created a wall of overlapping shields that offered strong collective protection against frontal attacks. As the Greeks noted, helmets and breastplates are for ourselves, but the shield is for the common defense. But the phalanx was more than just a shield wall. The shield wall was a very common infantry formation in ancient warfare. As we'll see, the Persians used a version of it. What made the phalanx unique was that the hope lights behind the front ranks, who were beyond the immediate reach of the enemy's weapons, also had a use for their shields. Its dish shape allowed the Hopelite to put his shoulder and much of his body into the shield. He would then rest the front of his shield on the back of his comrade in front and push. The goal was to create forward momentum on the men in the front ranks and keep them advancing. The Hopelite phalanx 
represented a simple and straightforward style of fighting. A Greek general, a strategos, had to do very little pre-battle planning, and had few tactical options available to him once fighting began. He led his troops to the battlefield, deployed them in their phalanx, performed a sacrifice to the gods, and delivered a morale-building speech. But his main duty was to take up the point of maximum danger in the phalanx, the front rank on the right wing, and serve as an inspiration to his men through his steadfast courage and prowess in arms. The phalanx itself did not demand rigorous training to be effective. A hope white needed strength, endurance, and above all courage, more than skills at maneuvering and in the handling of weapons. The reason for the simple style of fighting was that the Greek hoplite, strategos as much as common rancor, was, with one great exception, an amateur. Greek city-states demanded that their citizens fight in war as a condition of political participation. Therefore, all free adult Greek men, save for the very poorest and the wealthiest, were required to muster as hoplites and fight in the phalanx. Furthermore, they provided their own armor and arms, which represented a considerable personal expense. Greek warfare might have been simple and straightforward, but it was also as deadly, intense, and terrifying as possible within the limits of Iron Age technology. From about the 9th to the middle of the 5th century BCE, a battle involving Greeks tended to follow a stereotypical pattern. Two phalanxes, would line up on opposite ends of a level plain. A phalanx, arrayed for battle, must have been a fearsome and splendid sight. A wall of overlapping bronze shields, each marked with a device chosen by its bearer, a lucky charm, a family badge, a sign of a favored god. Above the shields waved horsehair plumes in a riot of colors, and above those, rank after rank of uplifted spear points, shining in the bright summer sun. There also would have been a wall of sounds, music from flutes and trumpets, war cries from men screwing up their courage, the inspirational harangue from the strategos, then a deep-voiced chorus from the phalanx as the hopelites raised the paean, the hymn traditionally sung as the signal to begin the advance into combat. The two phalanxes would come lumbering toward each other, first at a walk. Drawing closer, they accelerated into a shambling run. Then the two blocks of men would smash together in a grinding collision of bronze, iron, and flesh. It was at this moment of first impact that the combatants could deal their most dangerous blows. The promakoi, the front-rank fighters, thrusting their spears underhand, would use the momentum of the final run to penetrate shields and armor. If one phalanx did not immediately collapse at impact, then the two opposing formations became locked in a grinding, shoving match. The Greeks called this phase of the battle the otismos, literally the push. The hope light front rankers would stab at each other, trying to penetrate shields, helmets, and breastplates to deal fatal or crippling wounds. However, many of their spears would have been broken at the first collision. Numerous front rankers would have had to resort to their swords or the butt spikes of their spears. Meanwhile, the men of the rear ranks would put their bodies into their shields and shoved their comrades in front. The two hope white phalanxes would grind and push against each other until the front rank of one of them collapsed, allowing the enemy hope lights to pour into the interior of the formation. The penetrated phalanx would then rapidly disintegrate. The hope lights who made it up 
would break formation and attempt to flee for their lives. The victorious Hopelites would pursue, trying to run down and kill as many of their foes as possible. However, this pursuit never went very far. The victorious Hopelites were just as exhausted and encumbered by their gear as the defeated. After it was over, the victors stripped the enemy dead of their equipment and erected a trophy to commemorate their success. The losers requested a truce to recover their dead, thus admitting their defeat. Those dead would have been numerous but not crippling to the defeated. According to the best modern estimate, a vanquished Greek army would have lost about 15% of its men. The winners' losses were significantly less, perhaps 5%. I've dwelt on the heavy armor and arms of the Hopelite in order to help give some sense of the dynamics and experience of classical Greek battle. But the panoply was only one reason for the deadliness and effectiveness of the phalanx. A far more important one lay within the hearts and minds of the Hopelites, their sense of communal solidarity. The phalanx replaced the individual fighting skills of each Hopelite with the collective solidity and irresistibility of the formation itself. In fact, the Greeks of the city-states frowned upon ostentatious displays of individual prowess. At the Battle of Plataea, one of the two Spartan survivors of Thermopylae, Aristodamus, charged out of his assigned place in the front rank of the Spartan phalanx, plunged into the Persian army, and struck down several of the enemy before he was himself killed. Instead of praising his suicidal courage, the Spartans condemned Aristodamus for breaking ranks and so endangering the safety of the entire phalanx. Even more importantly, the city-state's phalanx was made up of all property-owning, able-bodied men between youth and old age, roughly the ages of 18 and 60. The phalanx was therefore the community under arms. Citizen fought beside citizen, neighbors with neighbors, family members with family members. In the presence of their friends and relatives, the Hopelites would do everything they could not to show cowardice and therefore suffer shame. Instead, they strove to prove their individual worth by displaying steadfast courage in the collective fight. As the 7th century poet Tyrtaeus exclaimed, And it is a good thing for his city and all the people share with him when a man plants his feet and stands in the foremost spears, relentlessly, all thought of foul flight completely forgotten, and has well trained his heart to be steadfast and to endure, and with words encourages the man who is stationed beside him. With hope lights fired by the spirit of communal solidarity, the phalanx could be both irresistible force and immovable object. The armies of Greek city-states were never made up exclusively of hope lights. Richer citizens could serve as cavalrymen. They provided not only their own arms and armor, but their horses. Poorer citizens who could not afford the hopelite panoply mustered as unarmored skirmishers equipped with javelins. Yet down to the wars with the Persians, these troops appeared to play only an insignificant role in the city-state way of war. Remarkably, ancient Greek descriptions of battles almost never describe them in action. For the Greeks, the hopelite and his phalanx were at the center of both their cultural vision as well as their practice of war. The supreme masters of the phalanx were the Spartans. Their mastery was based on the plain fact that they were the only professional hopelites in the entire Greek world. In the 8th century BCE, Sparta had conquered the neighboring country of Messenia. The Spartans 
then converted the Messenians into serfs called helots and forced them to labor in their fields. Freed from the necessity of making a living, Spartan males could devote all of their time to physical exercise and military training. This exercise and training began in childhood, in accordance with a regime organized and directed by the Spartan state, called the agoge, the upbringing. At the age of seven, all Spartan boys were required to leave their homes and enter one of the public barracks that also doubled as a school. There the boys were groomed for adult warriorhood through a tough regime of physical training and competitive games. At twelve, the Spartan boys were classified as youths, and the physical training intensified. At twenty, the young Spartans entered manhood and became full citizens. They then joined one of the adult messes, or Sicidia, with fifteen men. These squads of fifteen also formed the basic units of the Spartan army. Spartan men remained in their messes until they were thirty, when they were allowed to rejoin their families. However, all Spartans remained liable for military service until the age of sixty. Therefore, from the age of seven onward, Spartan males spent much of their time in physical exercises or military training. Plutarch, a Greek writer of the first century CE, once quipped that only war brought Spartan men a break from training for war. The Spartans were unmatched in the close-in fighting of the phalanx. Moreover, they were capable of tactical feats and maneuvers that other amateur Greek copelites could not even contemplate. An anecdote recorded by Plutarch illustrates the differences between the Spartans and the other Greeks. During the 4th century BCE, the Spartan king Agesilaus was leading an army of Spartans and Spartan allies. The allies complained that Agesilaus had brought too few soldiers with him. In response, Agesilaus ordered all the Spartans and allies to sit down. He then called upon all the potters to stand up, then the carpenters, the farmers, and so on through all of the civilian occupations. At the end, all of the allies were standing, and only the Spartans remained seated. Agesilaus then laughed and said, See how many more soldiers I have than you. The Spartans cultivated a distinctive appearance. Unlike other Greeks, Spartans kept their hair long. They also wore a red cloak. Spartan hopelites all had the same device on the faces of their bronze shields, a scarlet lambda, which stood for Lacedaemon, the other name for Sparta. The hopelite could, in addition, have a personal badge. One Spartan chose for his a life-sized fly. He explained that he intended to fight at such close range that his enemies could not help but see it. Already, by the 6th century BCE, the Spartans were the most feared military force in the entire Greek world. As we'll see, the Battle of Thermopylae would transform them into nothing less than legendary heroes. Having examined the Greeks, I'd like to turn to their enemies, the Empire of the Persians. At the time of Thermopylae, the Persian Empire extended from Macedonia to Egypt, and from the Middle East to the steppes of Central Asia and the valley of the Indus River in today's Pakistan. Because China was then fracturing into its age of warring states, the Empire of Persia was by far the largest unitary state in the world. It was also the first truly world empire, ruling over a dizzying diversity of lands and peoples. 
we can trace the origins of this immense realm back to the middle of the 6th century BCE, when the Persians broke out of their homeland in the Zagros Mountains of southern Iran and embarked on a spectacular career of military conquest under the leadership of Cyrus, a scion of the Achaemenid royal house and the first of their great kings. Cyrus's son Cambyses conquered Egypt, one of the wealthiest countries in the ancient world. His successor, Darius I, a distant relative who had married one of Cyrus's daughters, was a gifted administrator who consolidated and organized the empire. It was Darius's son, Xerxes I, who then set his sights on the conquest of Greece. Beginning with Darius I, Persians displayed a genius for government. The empire had four capitals, among which the great king and his court circulated. Basargadai, the original capital built by Cyrus, Persepolis, the main ceremonial center, Susa, the winter capital and chief administrative center, and Ekbatana, the summer capital. The empire's territories were divided into 30 provinces, called satrapies, each ruled by a satrap, or viceroy, most of whom were drawn from the members of the vast Achaemenid family. Persian bureaucrats meticulously surveyed the resources of each satrapy and then determined how much it should contribute to the great king in annual taxes. The proceeds of these taxes poured into the treasuries of the royal capitals. In the ruins of Persepolis, archaeologists have discovered thousands of clay tablets, the so-called fortification texts and treasury texts, which hint at the scale, sophistication, and longevity of this administrative system. The bulk of these tablets were written in Elamite cuneiform, but the empire's common language of administration was Aramaic, the same Semitic tongue spoken centuries later by a man from Nazareth named Jesus. In addition, the empire also had a common currency. Introduced by Darius I, it consisted of silver and gold coins called dariks that were stamped with the image of a running archer. For all of the Persian Empire's political centralization and bureaucratic sophistication, its yoke rested lightly on most of its subject peoples. Levels of taxation were never so heavy as to wreck local economies. More importantly, as long as the great king's subjects kept his peace, paid his taxes, and contributed troops to his armies, he and his servants largely left them alone to run their own communities, follow their time-honored customs, and worship their gods as they saw fit. The power of Persia ultimately rested on armed might on both land and sea, yet any investigation of the Persian army and navy runs immediately into a serious difficulty. The troves of bureaucratic documents from the imperial capitals as well as from the great satrapies of Babylon and Egypt give us tantalizing hints about certain aspects of the Persian military system. For example, Babylonian records indicate that the wealthy could fulfill their obligations as cavalrymen by a form of franchising. Such a man could hire an intermediary who would then find a substitute to perform the actual cavalry service. Furthermore, images in the form of carved reliefs, statuary, medals, and even coins give us a sense of the appearance and equipment of Persian troops. But what these bureaucratic documents and artistic images do not provide us are an overall description of the military system and an explanation of how it functioned in practice. For these, we have no choice but to turn to Herodotus. However, the father of history spoke and read only Greek, 
His ignorance of the languages of Persia is revealed by his comically mistaken belief that all Persian names contained the letter S. Furthermore, for all his extensive travels, which may have taken him as far east as Babylon, he never visited the imperial heartlands in Iran. But his main sources of information on the empire were Greek interlocutors who understood the imperial languages and knew about imperial affairs. Therefore, much of what he knew about the Persian Empire he received through, essentially, hearsay. This weakness, though, is more than balanced by Herodotus's good faith and his reliance on sources rather than invention. Whenever Herodotus lacks a source for a detail, no matter how crucial, he tends to omit that detail and inform his reader rather than relying on speculation. An eminent historian of the Persians, John Manuel Cook, concludes about Herodotus that there does seem to be a firm substratum of genuine historical knowledge, much of which has been obtained from Persian and Median sources. So what can Herodotus tell us about the Persian army? First and foremost, the army was as dazzlingly diverse as the empire itself. In the seventh book of the histories, Herodotus gives us an account of a great review that King Xerxes held at Doriscos, in Thrace, of the army that he was leading against Greece. The army had no less than 45 infantry and 11 cavalry contingents drawn from the disparate peoples of the empire. The Persians had, of course, pride of place. There were also Assyrians in bronze helmets and carrying great shields and clubs studded with iron, Scythian Saka wearing tall conical caps and armed with bows, daggers, and battle axes, Indians in cotton dress with bows and arrows of reed, Sarangians, who stood out from the rest because of their brightly dyed clothes, curly-haired Libyans, armored in leather and flourishing javelins with points hardened by fire, Arabians in flowing robes and riding camels, Ethiopians in leopard skins and lion skins, brandishing great bows and spears with points of sharpened antelope horn, Lydians bearing arms and armor like those of the Greeks, and Thracians in fox-skin caps and capes, equipped with javelins, light wicker shields, and daggers. Herodotus's muster list of Xerxes's army is one of the descriptive highlights of the histories, replete with colorful details, Homeric in tone and tenor. Yet most of the contingents listed do not then appear in Herodotus's subsequent accounts of combat. In these accounts, there are occurring mentions of the Persians, Medes, Saka, Bactrians, and Indians, both as infantry and cavalry. In addition, occasional references are made to Phrygians, Mysians, Thracians, Paeonians, and Ethiopians. Modern scholars have proposed various explanations for this seeming inconsistency. The one I find most plausible is that the force reviewed by Xerxes at Doriscos was a parade army, meant to display the armed might of the Persian realm and to demonstrate to the great king that his subject peoples had fulfilled their military obligations. A campaign army, chosen from the best and most dependable contingents, then did the actual fighting against the Greeks. This campaign army had, according to the best modern estimates, a strength of anything from 100,000 to 300,000 soldiers, plus an unknown but considerable number of camp followers. Most of these soldiers were infantry, capable of both missile and melee combat. The core of the army comprised Persians and Medes. The Medes 
were an Iranian people closely related to the Persians and were their partners in empire. The Persians and Medes were armed with long bows that shot iron-tipped reed arrows, short spears, and short swords. For protection, they used tall rectangular wicker shields called spara or garon. There is a great deal of debate about whether the Persians wore body armor. On this point, Herodotus offers contradictory evidence. In the Doriscos Review, he describes the Persians with scales of iron like in appearance to the scales of fish. But in his account of the Battle of Plataea, Herodotus stresses that the Persians were unarmored. The Greek word he uses can be translated as naked and without protective gear. This inconsistency, impossible to resolve based on the histories alone, has led to various hypotheses. One is that armor was worn only by Persian officers and picked troops. Another is that the Persians' equipment at Plataea had badly deteriorated after a long, grueling campaign, depriving them of their usual armor. What can be said with certainty, based on Herodotus's battle narratives, is that the Greeks viewed the Persians as being very lightly protected, especially when compared to Hoplites. More feared by the Greeks than Xerxes' infantry was his cavalry. The Persians themselves were redoubtable horsemen. The great king could also field a wide variety of other superb cavalrymen drawn from his eastern satrapies, such as the Saka, Bactrians, and Indians. Like the infantry, the cavalry fought both from a distance and hand-to-hand. Cuneiform tablets from Babylon describe horsemen equipped with bows, swords, lances, and iron corslets. Yet in spite of their high reputations, Persian cavalry could actually do very little harm to hoplites formed in a phalanx. Because they did not have stirrups, or even the four-horned saddle that would develop later in antiquity, Persian horsemen lacked the firm and secure seat on their mounts that would have allowed them to engage in shock combat, charging head-on and engaging in hand-to-hand fighting. As we'll see, Persian cavalry preferred hit-and-run tactics. In addition to infantry and cavalry, the army that invaded Greece had an elite force of picked troops, the famous immortals. In the Louvre in Paris, there is a spectacular frieze recovered from the royal palace of Susa, depicting Persian soldiers. They are clad in long, flowing robes with ample sleeves. Their heads are bare, their long, curly hair held back by diadems of beaten metal. In their hands are long spears, on their shoulders long bows and quivers full of arrows. Many archaeologists and historians believe they are the personal guards of the Achaemenid kings. It is Herodotus who dubs these guards the immortals. The name, he explains, comes from the fact that they are always numbered 10,000. Whenever one was killed, wounded, injured, or sick, he was instantly replaced, so the corps was always kept up to strength. Herodotus also adds the indelible detail that the immortals were always gorgeously bedecked with an abundance of gold jewelry. In battle, the Persians used their infantry, cavalry, and supporting troops in tandem, one of the earliest examples of combined arms tactics in military history. Shield-bearers, Sparabara in Persian, would set up a wall of their large wicker shields, Behind this shield wall sheltered the Persian archers, who would loose volleys of arrows at the enemy. Meanwhile, the cavalry would swoop down in squadrons, shooting arrows and throwing javelins, then riding away before the enemy could catch them. 
Only after the foe had suffered serious losses and their formations were beginning to disintegrate from this missile storm did the Persian infantry and cavalry rush into hand-to-hand combat to finish them off. These tactics had proven to be highly effective. According to Herodotus, the Persians had only suffered two serious defeats during the conquest of their empire. The Persians were even more formidable in the wider aspects of warfare, such as logistics, intelligence, and command and control. Administrative genius and vast financial resources allowed the Persians to raise huge armies, move them great distances, and maintain them for long periods in enemy country. To ease the movements of the great king's soldiers and ships, Persian engineers could accomplish awe-inspiring feats of building. To carry Xerxes' invasion army across the Hellespont, the modern Dardanelles Strait in Turkey, the engineers built two pontoon bridges, each more than two kilometers long. When a storm destroyed the original bridges, they were replaced by two more of an improved design, so that the Persian fleet could avoid sailing around the tempest-tossed tip of the Athos Peninsula in northern Greece the engineers dug a canal across its neck. The canal took thousands of laborers three years to complete, Less spectacular, perhaps, than the bridges in the canal, but no less impressive in their own way, were the four roads laid across the race for the march of the army. They were so well constructed that the Roman historian Livy attested that they were still in use three centuries after Thermopylae. The Persians were also masters of intelligence and diplomatic warfare. They developed one of the world's first professional espionage services. Great kings and their commanders made exceptional use of any information gathered by their spies. On campaign, the Persians usually had a comprehensive understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of their enemies, as well as thorough knowledge about the ground on which they were fighting. Furthermore, the Persians excelled at exploiting internal divisions among their opponents. They were aided in this by their huge wealth, which they used to suborn traitors and undermine alliances. Perhaps the best example of this Persian strength comes from almost a century after the invasions of Greece. In 394 BCE, the Spartan king Agesilaus was waging a successful campaign in Asia Minor against the western satrapies of the empire. Suddenly, he had to return home because King Artaxerxes II had bribed the Athenians, Thebans, and Corinthians to declare war against Sparta. Agesilaus declared that he was being driven out of Asia by the great king with the aid of 30,000 archers. And by archers, he meant gold derricks. These Persian masteries of logistics and intelligence were exercised by an extremely effective headquarters. In contrast to the Greeks, who, as we'll see, even under the threat of conquest, remained split into numerous city-states, each jealously guarding its independence, The Persians enjoyed unity of command. Great King Xerxes was in complete control of both his vast heterogeneous army and his huge fleet. He and his subordinates meticulously planned the invasion of Greece so that in just three months, they were able to bring their army and fleet across southeastern Europe from the Dardanelles to Athens, despite the best Greek efforts to stop them. The Persians were thus vastly superior to the Greeks in what general staff officers and military theorists call the higher levels of warfare, the operational and strategic levels. But the Persians even had advantages on the tactical battlefield level. 
Their wider variety of troops gave them much greater flexibility than the Greeks. They could respond both more quickly and more effectively to changing combat situations. This all begs the question, then, how could the Persians have lost? The simple answer is that the Greeks had one trick up their sleeves that the Persians were never able to match, the Hoplite Charge. The Persians found their wicker shields and body armor, that is if they wore any, willfully inadequate protection against Hoplite spears. By contrast, their own hand-to-hand weapons were outmatched by Greek arms and armor. Herodotus notes that Persian spears were shorter than those of the Hoplites. Furthermore, the historian stresses that the Persians were not as accustomed as their adversaries to close combat. At the Battle of Plataea, the Persians, in desperation but also with immense courage, used their bare hands to seize and break their enemy's spears. Perhaps most importantly, the Persians could not come close to matching the cohesion and determination possessed by the Greek hoplites thanks to the communal solidarity of the phalanx. Thus, in a stand-up fight, relatively small numbers of hoplites could overrun and kill very large numbers of Persian infantry. The first contacts between the mainland Greeks and the Persians occurred during the reign of Cyrus. As the empire expanded rapidly westwards, The Greeks of Ionia in Asia Minor sent emissaries to Sparta, requesting support against the new power. The Spartans responded by sending an ambassador to Cyrus, who warned him against committing any aggression against the Ionian Greeks. The great king replied by incredulously asking who and how many in number these Spartans were who made this declaration. After this moment of mutual incomprehension, relations between the mainland Greeks and the Persians steadily grew. For a generation, both sides managed to avoid conflict. Persians annexed the city-states of Ionia without any response from the mainland Greeks. In 510 BCE, Hippias, the tyrant of Athens, after being overthrown by a revolt in the city and a Spartan invasion, took refuge in the court of great King Darius. Hippias inaugurated a long tradition of Greek political exiles seeking and finding sanctuary in Persia. The turning point in Greek-Persian relations came with the outbreak of a great revolt by the Ionian Greeks in 499 BCE. This uprising was sparked by Ionian dissatisfaction with the Greek tyrants whom the Persians had appointed to rule over them. The Ionian rebels begged for help from the mainland city-states of Eritrea and Athens. The new democratic regime in Athens found good reasons to support the Ionians. The Persians were, after all, sheltering Hippias, who was undoubtedly planning a return to power. In addition, the Athenians regarded the Ionian Greeks as close kin. Many of the Ionian city-states had been founded by colonists from Athens. The Athenian assembly agreed to send 20 warships to Ionia, This force was joined by five warships from Eritrea. The Aeonian revolt initially went well. The rebels, along with their Athenian and Eritrean allies, marched on the city of Sardis, the seat of the Persian satrap of Ionia, captured and burned it. After this, the rebellions spread across all of Asia Minor, with non-Greek peoples like the Carians joining the Ionians. Great King Darius responded by sending no less than three armies, each commanded by one of his sons-in-law, to crush the revolt. However, one of these armies was ambushed and wiped out by the Carians at the Battle of Pedasus in 496 BCE. After the Battle of Pedasus, 
only the second major defeat ever suffered by the Persians, great King Darius made subduing the Ionian revolt his chief priority. His generals summoned troops from Persia and battle squadrons of the imperial navy from Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Egypt. In 494 BCE, the Persians launched a land and sea offensive against the heart of the rebellion, the city-state of Miletus. At the Battle of Lade, Persian navy destroyed the Ionian fleet. Lade demonstrated not just the Persians' naval strength, but also their mastery of subterfuge and diplomatic warfare. The defeat of the rebels was sealed by the defection of the Greeks of Samos, whom the Persians had convinced to change sides. The Battle of Lade proved to be decisive. Following it, the Persians subjugated Ionia and the rest of Asia Minor. To placate the Ionians, the Persians did not reinstate the tyrants, instead permitting the city-states to establish democratic governments. But great King Darius never forgot that Athens and Eritrea had aided the Ionian rebels. Herodotus writes that he shot an arrow into the sky and called on God to grant him vengeance against Athens. The king then ordered a slave to say to him three times whenever his dinner was served, Master, remember the Athenians. The Persians, though, were not driven by revenge or by dreams of world conquest. They had practical reasons for seeking to settle scores with the mainland Greeks. From their perspective, Athenian and Eritrean support for the rebels was unprovoked aggression. As long as the mainland Greeks had a free hand to intervene in Asia Minor, the Persian Empire would never have a firm grip on the region. Therefore, sound strategic reasons, as well as concerns about imperial security, now drove Darius and his servants to prepare for the first Persian invasion of Greece. This invasion was put into motion in the spring of 490 BCE, when squadrons of the Imperial Navy left their bases in Phoenicia and sailed to the coast of Asia Minor. There they took aboard an army commanded by two generals, Datis and Artaphernes, and accompanied by the Athenian tyrant Hippias. Herodotus tells us that the Persian fleet numbered 600 warships and horse transports. Unfortunately, the historian does not disclose the strength of the army. Modern scholars have estimated it at 24,000 men, including 1,000 cavalry, based on the size of the fleet. Such a force would have been too small for the complete conquest and occupation of mainland Greece. Great King Darius and his generals were planning a punitive expedition aimed at Eritrea and Athens. The fleet set out across the Aegean. It first subdued the great Cycladic island of Naxos, then it proceeded to Greece itself and made landfall on the southern tip of the island of Euboea, on which was located the city-state of Eritrea. Besieged in their city, the Eritreans resisted bravely for six days. On the seventh, a traitor opened the gates to the enemy. Following great King Darius's instructions, the Persians sacked Eritrea, burned its temples, and enslaved its people. They then crossed the narrow Euripus Strait and landed in Attica, the territory of Athens, on a plain called Marathon. Hippias had advised the Persian generals to disembark their army there because it was just 40 kilometers from Athens and, more importantly, it was excellent ground for cavalry. Within hours of learning of the Persian landing, the Athenians took the brave decision to mobilize their entire hoplite phalanx and march to Marathon. They were convinced to do so by the statesman and strategos Miltiades. At the same time, 
the Athenians dispatched a messenger, named by Herodotus as Pheidippides, to Sparta to beseech its aid. Pheidippides reached Sparta the day after setting out from Athens. The Spartans agreed to send out their whole army. However, there was a catch. They could not do so immediately, because they were then observing the religious festival called the Carnea. They would need to wait until the festival was over before they could take up arms, or they would incur the wrath of the gods. Some modern scholars have interpreted the Spartans' reply as an expedient excuse to avoid facing the Persians. This interpretation is belied by the fact that the Spartans were, even by ancient Greek standards, a particularly religious people. Similar scruples would prevent them from going to war down to the 4th century BCE. Furthermore, when the Spartans did finally go to the aid of Athens, they went with great speed, reaching Marathon in just three days. The Athenians were therefore facing the Persians alone, except for one exception, the tiny polis of Plataea, which had been an Athenian ally for 30 years, sent its entire army to Marathon. Once again, Herodotus frustratingly does not tell us the numbers involved. The best modern calculations place the Athenians at 10,000, the Plataeans at 1,000. The Greek allies took a position in the hills that ringed Marathon. A prolonged stalemate of several days then ensued. The Persians did not wish to grapple with the Greeks in the hills. The Athenians and Plataeans did not want to go down into the plain and face the enemy horsemen. At last, the Persians assembled their army and made for one of the exits leading out of the plain. To stop them, the Greek allies came down from the hills and formed up their phalanx. The Persian army extended across the entire plain, from the hills to the seashore. Datis and Artaphernes placed their best troops, the Persian and Saka contingents, in the center of their line. Cavalry were probably on the wings, standard operating procedure in ancient warfare. The Greeks matched the Persian deployment, but because they were outnumbered two to one, the enemy line threatened to overlap them. Their solution, possibly hit upon by Miltiades, although Herodotus does not say, was to strengthen their flanks at the expense of thinning out their center. This was probably done by having fewer than eight ranks in the middle of the phalanx and eight or even more on its wings. The Greeks confronted another, even more serious tactical problem. An ancient archer could shoot 6 to 12 arrows a minute for as long as his strength and his supply of arrows lasted. Since the Persian army could have had as many as 20,000 archers, it could fill the air with 120,000 to 240,000 arrows each minute. The Athenians and Plataeans had never faced such a storm of arrows. Their solution was both simple and brilliant. They ran. Herodotus insists three times that the Athenian and Plataean hopelites went at their enemies on the double or at the run, even though the initial distance separating the armies was eight stadia, or 1,600 meters. Modern experts once completely dismissed this detail of Herodotus's account, claiming it would have been impossible for fully equipped hopelites to run any significant distance without becoming exhausted. But in 1973, Researchers at Pennsylvania State University put undergraduate physical education majors in replica hoplite panoply and had them simulate the run at Marathon. They discovered that their ersatz hoplites could run for 200 meters while still preserving the strength and endurance to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. 200 meters 
also happens to be the effective range of ancient archers. In other words, the distance in which their arrows would begin inflicting serious casualties. As a result, most historians and classicists now conclude that the Athenians and Plataeans accelerated into a running charge as soon as they began taking damaging hits from the Persian bowmen. In doing so, they managed to cross the lethal zone of the arrow storm in less than two minutes and crash headlong into the enemy. The impact of the Greek hoplites must have been tremendous. The Persians had never experienced anything like it before. On the wings, the hoplites bowled over their more lightly armored and armed enemies, quickly putting them to flight. In the center, the Athenians at first did not do so well, as the crack Persian and Saka troops managed to fight their way through the thinner phalanx there. But the victorious Greek wings then turned inward and fell on them, cutting them to pieces. The Greeks pursued their enemies all the way to the shore, spearing everyone they could catch. The surviving Persians desperately scrambled onto their waiting ships and fled out to sea. The Battle of Marathon was the first demonstration of how the Persians could not resist the momentum and impact of the Hoplite charge. The losses were entirely one-sided. 6,400 Persians were killed, as opposed to 192 Athenians and 11 Plataeans. When the Spartans finally arrived and learned what had happened, they rushed to the battlefield to look upon the corpses of the dreaded Persians, then departed again, praising the Athenians and their achievement. The victory of Marathon would redound to the Athenians' everlasting glory. For as long as they lived, the Marathonomachoi, the veterans of Marathon, whenever they wished to remind anyone that they had taken part in the battle, had only to say, We ran. And when the great Aeschylus, the father of Greek tragedy, came to write his own epitaph, he chose to commemorate not his plays, but the day he donned his helmet and armor, picked up his shield and spear, and charged headlong with his kith and kin at the barbarians. Beneath this stone, he wrote, lies Aeschylus, son of Euphorion the Athenian, who perished in the wheat-bearing land of Gela. Of his noble prowess the grove of Marathon can speak, and the long-haired Persian knows it well. Marathon was certainly a humiliation for the Persians, but in military terms it was insignificant, a minor setback on the periphery of their empire. After it, great King Darius became determined to deal with the mainland Greeks once and for all. This time, he would not dispatch a mere punitive expedition. Instead, he would personally lead the whole might of his empire on both land and sea. But before he could set out, he died in 487 BCE. His son and successor Xerxes took up his father's ambition and design. First, though, he had to suppress a serious rebellion in Egypt, as well as unrest in Judea and Babylonia. Preparations for the conquest of Greece then took a further three years. At last, in the spring of 481 BCE, Xerxes set out from Susa for the west. He first stopped in Cappadocia, where the many contingents of the imperial army had assembled. He and his host then proceeded to Sardis. After wintering there, they headed north for the Dardanelles, the straits separating Europe and Asia. When the great king reached the sea at Abydos, he was greeted by an awesome sight, the massed squadrons of the imperial navy. Herodotus tells us that there were 1,207 war galleys and 3,000 cargo ships. 
the warships would have been provided by the empire's seagoing peoples. The Phoenicians, the greatest mariners of the ancient Mediterranean, constituted the core of the armada. Large contingents were also furnished by the Egyptians, Cyprians, Carians, and not least the Ionian Greeks. Each fighting vessel would have had 200 rowers and sailors, as well as 30 Persian and Saka marines. The navy could therefore have had easily as many men as the army. It also included one formidable woman. Artemisia, warrior queen of Halicarnassus, was personally commanding a little fleet of five warships. While great King Xerxes was marshalling the immense strength of his empire, the Greeks were making preparations of their own. The most consequential were those of the Athenians. In the middle of the 480s, a staggeringly rich vein of silver had been discovered in Athens's mines at Laurion. The Athenians had heatedly debated about what to do with this windfall. Many had wanted it divided up among the city's citizens, but the statesman Themistocles had made a successful case that the Athenians should use the silver to build 200 new warships. These warships were of the latest revolutionary design, the trireme. The dreadnought of the ancient Mediterranean world, the trireme was so named because it had 170 rowers distributed over three levels or banks of oars. It was larger and faster than all previous war galleys, carried a large complement of marines for boarding fights as well as amphibious operations, and was armed with a bow-mounted, bronze-sheathed ram to sink opposing ships. During the debates in the popular assembly, Themistocles had only been able to convince his fellow citizens to support his naval program by pointing out that Athens needed the ships in the war it was currently waging against its main Greek maritime rival, the island polis of Aegina. Yet since Themistocles was reputed to be the cleverest and most farsighted of all the Greeks, he had undoubtedly realized these ships would be indispensable once the Persians returned in greater strength. When they did, the triremes of Themistocles proved to be the salvation of Greece. By the late 480s BCE, news of the Persian mobilization were reaching Greece. According to Herodotus, the Greeks received a vital piece of intelligence from the exiled Spartan king Demaratus. The Spartans were unique in the Greek world for having a diarchy, a rule by two kings. Demaratus had lost a bitter power struggle with his co-ruler, Cleomenes, and had been forced to take refuge at the Persian court. In the spring of 481 BCE, shortly before Xerxes left Susa for his army, Demaratus sent a message to Sparta that the Persians intended to conquer the whole of Greece. He hid this message by taking a wax writing tablet, scraping off the wax, carving the words into the wood backing, and then replacing the wax. It required the ingenuity of Gorgo, wife of King Leonidas of Sparta, to discover Demaratus's warning. Because Demaratus was well known to have had no love for those who had exiled him, and also would later serve Xerxes well and faithfully, Herodotus adds the cautionary note that he did not know if the former king sent his message out of goodwill or malign pleasure. The Greeks' immediate response to this news was entirely traditional, as well as utterly strange to our eyes. They spoke with the gods. Emissaries from all the mainland city-states rushed to Delphi, the most sacred site for all Greeks, to consult its oracle, the priestess of Apollo called the Pythia. 
When the Athenian representatives went before her, the Pythia's words could not have been more terrifying and dreadful. Athens was doomed to complete destruction, she declared, and the Athenians must flee to the ends of the earth. Just before the horrified representatives are about to depart, they are advised by a sympathetic Delphian to approach the priestess again, this time as suppliants bearing laurel branches. When they did so, they received a less sinister and much more enigmatic answer. Vainly doth Pallas strive to appease great Zeus of Olympus. Words of entreaty are vain, and cunning counsels of wisdom. Nonetheless, a reed I will give thee again, of strength adamantine. All shall be taken and lost, that the sacred border of Kekrops holds in keeping today, and the dales divine of Scythiron. Yet shall a wood-built wall by Zeus all-seeing be granted, unto the triton born, a stronghold for thee and thy children. Bide not still in thy place, for the host that cometh from landward, cometh with horsemen and foot, but rather withdraw at his coming, turning thy back to the foe. Thou yet shalt meet him in battle. Salamis, Isle Divine, tis writ that children of women, thou shalt destroy one day, in the season of seed-time or harvest. The words of the Delphic oracle to the Athenians present modern readers of Herodotus with special difficulties of interpretation. In particular, how did the Pythia know that the crucial naval battle would take place off the island of Salamis more than a year before it actually took place? Unless we, like the ancient Greeks, believe that the priestess of Apollo could see into the future, we need to come up with some rational explanation. One possibility advanced by some modern historians is that the Pythia, who would have been a very well-educated, very well-connected, and very well-informed woman, had analyzed the situation and determined that Salamis, an island squarely situated in what could be called Athenian home waters, was the most logical place for a great clash between the Persian and Greek navies. I think this explanation is possible, but not entirely convincing. As we'll see, the Athenians were determined to stop the Persians well before they reached the vicinity of their city. The Battle of Salamis was forced on them by events. I think the most plausible explanation is that the detail regarding Salamis was an invention that entered the historical record after the Persian invasion. Almost as soon as it was over, the invasion became Athens's national epic, and the decisive battle of Salamis the city's proudest moment. As a result, the Athenians modified the original words of the Delphic oracle in order to build up the drama and the near-mythical status of the defeat of the Persians. When Herodotus came to write his Historia around the 430s BCE, his Athenian sources provided him with a modified oracle. But what I think is much more important than the actual words of the Delphic oracle was the utter seriousness with which the Athenians accepted them. The Pythia's pronouncement provoked yet another heated debate in Athens's popular assembly. Various interpretations of it were advanced, debated, dismissed. Then Themistocles intervened. The wood-built wall, he argued, was a reference to the city's new-built fleet, while divine Salamis pointed to a great victory at sea. His argument carried the day. The Athenians, Herodotus writes, resolved that they would put their trust in heaven and meet the foreign invader of Hellas with the whole power of their fleet, ships and men, and with all other Greeks that were so minded. I would like to point out one more thing about this story. 
just like the Spartans' decision to wait for the end of the Carnea festival before marching to Marathon, the Athenians' reaction to the Delphic Oracle shows just how important religion was to the ancient Greeks. Today, we treat the Olympian gods as little more than fodder for young adult novels, comic books, and action movies. For the ancient Greeks, these gods were at the heart of a sophisticated and very old system of beliefs. But Greek religion was more than just beliefs. In the absence of nationalism and political ideologies, it functioned as the main source of personal and group identities. In an age before science and the scientific method, it was the primary way to understand and explain both the natural and the man-made world. We should therefore take Herodotus at his word that by deciding to fight the Persians, the Athenians were genuinely convinced they were moving according to a divine will. In the autumn of 481 BCE, word reached Greece that Xerxes and his army had arrived in Sardis. The Greeks who were determined to resist the Persians, in Herodotus's formulation, all the Greeks that had the better purpose for Hellas assembled to begin laying out a common course of action. The historian does not tell us exactly which city-states attended, but we can confidently surmise that Athens and Sparta were there. Moreover, Sparta had long dominated the region of southern Greece called the Peloponnese. It had built an alliance called the Peloponnesian League that embraced most of this region's city-states. These allies would have followed Sparta's lead and sent envoys to the conference. These anti-Persian Greeks, we can perhaps even call them the Greek resistance, decided to take three measures. First, they agreed to end their rivalries with each other, notably the conflict between Aegina and Athens. Second, they sent spies to Sardis to discover the strength of the Persian invasion force. Finally, they dispatched emissaries to seek out more allies in the far-flung reaches of the Greek world. Of these three actions, only the first was successful. The spies sent to Sardis were almost immediately captured by the Persians. Instead of having them executed, great King Xerxes ordered the spies to be shown everything they desired to see and then released. The king calculated that the spies' report would help to intimidate and demoralize the Greeks. The search for allies was an abject failure. Everywhere the envoys went, their pleas for help were either deflected by polite excuses or rebuffed outright. In the end, the only military help that reached the resistance from the wider Greek world was a single warship from Croton in southern Italy. In fact, of the hundreds of city-states of mainland Greece itself, the vast majority chose not to join the resistance. Instead, they cast their lot with the Persians. So many poleis sent earth and water, the traditional tokens of submission, to the great king that the Greeks coined a new word, medizo, to Medize, or to join the Medes. The Medizers included some of the strongest and most important states in mainland Greece. Thebes, arguably the third most powerful polis after Athens and Sparta, and the dominant power of the region of central Greece called Boeotia, teetered on the brink of Medizing throughout the summer of 480 BCE. The city-state of Argos, Sparta's greatest rival in the Peloponnese, did not join the Persians outright. Instead, it declared itself neutral and refused to contribute any hopelights or ships to the resistance forces. In the end, the resistance would include just 31 Greek city-states. After the failure of the spies and the search for allies, 
the Greeks of the resistance met again, this time to plan their first concrete military action against the invaders. By now, the Persians were poised to cross over the Dardanelles from Asia to Europe. This second meeting was galvanized by the appearance of delegates from Thessaly, the expansive region of northern Greece bordering the semi-Greek kingdom of Macedon. The Thessalians declared they were willing to join the resistance, but only if the southern Greeks sent a substantial force to help defend their country. Herodotus does not report on the deliberations of the resistance, but we can hazard some guesses about its content and direction. By making a stand in Thessaly, the Greeks could keep the Persians well away from their core territories. Moreover, the Thessalians were the finest horsemen in Greece. Their aid against the Persian cavalry would be invaluable. The resistance therefore dispatched an army of 10,000 men to Thessaly. This force was led by two commanders, Euinetos, a senior Spartan officer, and Themistocles of Athens. Duly joined by the Thessalian cavalry, the Greeks marched up to the Vale of Tempe, which was the main route connecting Macedon with Thessaly. No sooner were the Greeks and Thessalians in position when they received an urgent message from King Alexander of Macedon. Although he had long been a Persian vassal, the Macedonian monarch sympathized with the resistance. He disclosed to the Greeks and Thessalians the vast numbers of the approaching Persian soldiers and ships. If they fought, he warned, they would be overwhelmed. He advised them instead to flee. But even more persuasive than King Alexander's advice was the Greek commander's shocked realization that the Vale of Tempe was not the only way the enemy could enter Thessaly. The Persians could march through two other passes, easily outflank their force, and attack it from behind. Herodotus states that the southern Greeks immediately retreated from the Vale and returned home. Abandoned by the resistance, the Thessalians joined the Persians. The Tempe expedition was hastily conceived and badly executed. It revealed that the Greek resistors had committed themselves to a war that surpassed anything they had ever experienced before in terms of scale and sophistication. For the Athenian Spartans and the other southern Greeks, Thessaly represented alien territory, well beyond their normal areas of operation. Their knowledge of the terrain of northern Greece was so poor, they had no idea that the enemy could easily turn the Tempe position. If their 10,000 troops had stood their ground and entrenched themselves in the Vale, they would have been no match for Xerxes' grand army, and they could not have been easily nor quickly reinforced. Tempe was too far away from the resistance's main bases in southern Greece. Finally, and most importantly, the Greeks had made no provisions to stop the Persian navy, which posed just as dangerous a threat as the army. The Greeks of the resistance, however, seemed to have learned valuable lessons from the Tempe debacle. Their next effort to stop the Persian invasion would take place at the Pass of Thermopylae and would prove far more effective. During the summer of 480 BCE, the Persians bore down on Greece. Many historians estimate that their combined land and sea forces represented the largest invasion of Europe until the D-Day landings of June 1944. For much of its march through Thrace and down into Macedon and Thessaly, the imperial army kept close to the coast. Just offshore sailed the Imperial Armada. Following their initial abortive effort to face the Persians at the Vale of Tempe, the Greeks of the Resistance met again to plot a new course of action. The imminent arrival of the enemy must have served to concentrate their minds. Moreover, 
through the reports of their spies and the information passed on to them by Alexander of Macedon, they had a realistic appreciation of the immensity of the forces arrayed against them. They now determined to make their stand at the Pass of Thermopylae. It was the only pass that the Persian army could take in order to reach central and southern Greece. Crucially, the pass was exceedingly narrow, far more so than the Vale of Tempe. We need to banish from our mind's eye the Thermopylae of today. The wide alluvial plain there now is the product of centuries of silting by the Spurkaios and other local rivers. 2,500 years ago, Thermopylae was, at its narrowest point, a defile perhaps 20 meters wide. Herodotus describes it as little more than a cartway. On one side rose up the steep slopes of the mountains. On the other, the ground dropped away to the sea. In such constricted terrain, the Persian advantages of massive numbers and superb cavalry were completely nullified. The Thermopylae position had one final, absolutely essential advantage. It allowed the Greek army to mount a coordinated defense with the Greek navy. Sixty kilometers offshore of the pass was the northern point of the Long Island of Euboea. The point was named Artemisium, after a local shrine of the goddess Artemis. Behind the point opened a wide bay, the finest harbor in the region, which could shelter the Greek resistance's entire fleet of triremes. From there, the fleet was perfectly placed to challenge the southward advance of the Persian armada. Barry Strauss, a leading authority on ancient warfare, has called the position at Artemisium a strategist's triumph, and he speculates that Themistocles might have chosen it personally. By deciding to make their stand on the Thermopylae-Artemisium line, the members of the Greek resistance had finally come up with a comprehensive and coherent strategy to defeat the Persians. They were fighting a forward defense to block the invaders from reaching the heartlands of central and southern Greece. More importantly, they were fighting for time. Great King Xerxes, the Greeks must have realized, had both political and practical imperatives for a quick victory. Politically, because he ruled his empire personally, Xerxes could not remain on campaign in distant and remote Greece for very long. If he did so, he risked his empire's administration falling into disorder or even rebellion breaking out somewhere. Thus, he had to return to his capitals to retake the reins of government as soon as possible. Practically, the great king's invasion forces consumed staggering amounts of food, water, and fodder. This was the case not only for the army, but for the fleet as well, which, as we've seen, had just as many men. Persian quartermasters were expert at gathering supplies from occupied territories. Even so, if the army and fleet became stuck in one place too long, they would eat out and drink up the surrounding countryside like biblical locusts. They would then have no choice except to move on or perish slowly from starvation and thirst. If the Greeks could drag out their defense of the Thermopylae-Artemisium axis, the Persians might eventually be forced to give up and go away. The success of this strategy depended on the Greek army and the Greek navy protecting each other. On the one hand, if the army gave way at Thermopylae, the Persians would then be able to overrun the navy's bases in southern Greece. On the other hand, if the navy was defeated at Artemisium, the Persian fleet would have been free to get behind and cut off the army at the pass. Because each of its ships carried 30 Persian and Saka marines, the fleet would have been able to land a formidable force of around 36,000 men. The Greek resistance planned to commit all available forces to the Thermopylae-Artemisium line. 
The core of the army would be provided by Sparta and its allies of the Peloponnesian League. When fully mobilized, as they were for Plataea the next year, the Spartans could put 10,000 hoplites into line. The Peloponnesian allies added around 15,000 more. The majority of the fleet, about 180 triremes, was Athenian. A further 12 city-states of the Resistance Alliance furnished 100 additional warships. As the alliance's leading military power, the Spartans insisted they exercise overall command. One of Sparta's two kings would lead the army. Surprisingly, a Spartan would also command at sea, even though the city's naval contribution amounted to a paltry ten ships. The admiral of the fleet was Eurybiades, a high-ranking Spartan officer, but he was little more than a figurehead. The real naval strategist was Themistocles. Even as those decisions were being made, and preparations set in motion, the Greek gods intervened, or rather the Greeks' belief in their gods. As the Persians approached in August 480 BCE, the Greeks found themselves on the eve of the Olympic festival. Held every four years, the festival and its games were dedicated to Zeus, most powerful of gods. For pious Greeks, Zeus had to be given his due. Therefore, participating in his games overrode all other considerations, even foreign invasion. Furthermore, the Spartans were simultaneously observing the Carnea, the very same religious festival that had prevented them from marching to Marathon ten years previously. The twin festivals represented a religious, strategic, and military nightmare for the Greek resistance. With the Spartans staying home, no other Greek polis dared to send its troops to Thermopylae. Yet, if they waited until the Olympics and Carnea were over, the Persians would be through the pass in the process of conquering southern Greece. Could all this have been planned by the Persians? Great King Xerxes certainly had access to plenty of information about the Greeks and their religion. In addition to what he learned from the spies of the Persians' espionage networks, he could also consult his Greek vassals and exiles in his entourage, such as the Spartan Demaratus. Yet I find it unlikely the Persians could have counted on invading at exactly the time when the Greek resistance would have been disarmed by the religious truce. Just getting their massive army and fleet to Greece intact and with enough of the campaigning season left over to carry out the conquest of the country was a substantial strategic and logistical accomplishment. Arriving at a precise moment was something beyond even the Persians' capabilities. Instead, the timing of the Persian invasion with the Olympian and Carnean festivals was a coincidence that worked out beautifully for great King Xerxes. The Greeks' nightmarish dilemma was solved by the Spartans. At this moment of supreme crisis, the city's authorities decided they could send a special task force to Thermopylae without bringing down divine wrath. This force would be commanded by Spartan royalty in the person of King Leonidas. It consisted of 300 hoplites picked from the whole Spartan citizen phalanx. Herodotus adds one further key detail about the 300. They were all mature men with sons. Because the historian offers no explanation for it, this detail has been endlessly debated ever since. Two conclusions, I think, can be drawn. First, as most other readers of Herodotus have concluded, the Spartans chose men who already had sons in order to ensure that no citizen family would be wiped out. The task force was setting out on a particularly dangerous mission, and casualties were bound to be very high. Second, as a mature man, 
Each of the 300 would have been a seasoned, combat-hardened veteran. Leonidas's force was therefore small in size, but high in fighting quality. With the Spartans now in the field led by one of their kings, the other members of the resistance agreed to contribute small forces of their own. The allies of the Peloponnesian League together provided 4,000 hoplites. Principal city-state of Boeotia, Thebes, which, as we've seen, was on the brink of Medizing, dispatched just 400 hoplites. Moreover, Herodotus implies that these Thebans were present only because Leonidas had compelled them to come as a guarantee of their fellow citizens' good behavior. In other words, they were hostages of a sort. No similar questions of loyalty or zeal applied to the contingent supplied by another Boeotian polis, Thespiae. It sent out its entire phalanx of 700 hoplites. Finally, the Greeks who lived around the Pass of Thermopylae, the Locrians and Phocians, sent all their available men to join up with Leonidas. Leonidas's force had a maximum strength of 8,000 men. This number represented just one-fifth of the total that the resistance could put into the field and would for the Battle of Plataea. The Spartan contingent was especially modest, just 3% of their army. What did the members of the Greek resistance possibly expect to accomplish with such a token force? Herodotus tells us that Leonidas's force was intended to be an advance guard that would occupy Thermopylae and hold off the Persians. Once the religious festivals were over, the main Greek army would rush up to reinforce Leonidas and his men. John Lazenby notes that the full moon of August would have signaled the end of both the Olympics and the Carnea. Leonidas and his advance guard would have had to hold out at Thermopylae for no more than a fortnight before being reinforced. For their part, the Athenians would have nothing to do with a token force or advance guard. Instead, their entire fleet of 180 triremes rode north to take up station at Artemisium. There they were joined by the Spartan admiral Eurybiades and the rest of the resistance squadrons. The Athenians were no less pious than the Spartans, yet they understood they were in even greater danger. If the Persian invaders broke through at Thermopylae Artemisium, they would make straight for Athens. Only after taking the city would they complete the conquest of Greece by moving on the Peloponnese and Sparta. This knowledge of impending mortal peril surely convinced the Athenians that they had to set aside any taboo against warfare imposed by the Olympics. In this regard, they received invaluable assistance from the pronouncement of the Delphic Oracle. As we've noted, Themistocles had convinced his fellow citizens that they ought to interpret it as a divine command to resist the invaders at sea. In the brilliant light and scorching heat of deep summer, King Leonidas led his men to Thermopylae. Unfortunately, we know very little about Leonidas before his dramatic actions at the battle. According to Paul Cartledge, one of the world's leading experts on the Spartans, he would have been around 50 years old in 480 BCE. He had not been destined to be king at all. Only the death of his older half-brother Cleomenes I without male issue had opened the way to the throne. Relatively late in life, he had married Gorgo, Cleomenes's only daughter. She had given birth to a son, Pleistarchus, who was only a boy at the time of Thermopylae. Leonidas had one more characteristic which served to further distinguish him from other Spartan kings. Traditionally, in Sparta, the crown princes of the two royal dynasties were the only males who would have been exempted from the agoge, the militarized education system. 
Because he had not been expected to become king, Leonidas had undergone the upbringing in all its intensity and rigor. As a result, he had the experience, ethos, and temper of the Spartan hopelight embedded in his very muscles and bones. I think that he must have had a high reputation among his fellow Spartans as a warrior and a general. For this reason, they chose him to lead the all-important task force to Thermopylae instead of the other Spartan king, Leotychidas. Herodotus's account of Thermopylae is one of the richest and most detailed sections of his histories. It is a day-by-day, sometimes hour-by-hour record of the lead-up to the battle, the fighting itself, and the aftermath. As soon as Leonidas arrived at Thermopylae, he occupied what was called the Middle Gate. Although not the narrowest part of the pass, the local people, the Phocians, had identified the Middle Gate as the best place from which to block the pass, and had long ago built a wall for this purpose. By August 480 BCE, this wall lay in ruins. Leonidas immediately ordered his men to repair it. A possible remnant of it exists today. What Herodotus called the Phocian Wall gave the Greeks a strong position to defend. But the Spartan king then received some very alarming news. The Phocians informed him that the main pass of Thermopylae was not the only way through the mountains. A narrow path called the Anopaya snaked around the thickly forested slopes of Mount Calidromo. It began before the middle gate and ended behind it. In other words, the Greek position could be turned or outflanked. Leonidas had no choice except to assign part of his force to guard the path. The Phocians volunteered for this duty, and, in addition, swore to the Spartan king they would hold the path to the last man. Meanwhile, great King Xerxes and his army were making their final march to Thermopylae. Fearful rumors of the advancing Persians reached the little army at the middle gate. That they were so numerous, the dust kicked up by their marching feet turned day into night, and that when they drank, whole rivers would dry up. Panic seized the Peloponnesians. They called on Leonidas to withdraw to the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow strip of land connecting the Peloponnese to the rest of mainland Greece. But the Locrians and Phocians angrily denounced this as treachery and defeatism. Leonidas sided with the local Greeks and decided the army would remain. He sent messengers to the cities of the resistance, imploring them to send their reinforcements at once. The arrival of the Persians must have been both a beautiful and imposing sight. In the words of the Song of Solomon, terrible as an army with banners. The vanguard of the great king's host filled the western end of the pass. Behind it filed a seemingly endless parade of regiments drawn from all of the lands of the wide east. Their warriors wore exotic garb in every color, Many rode fantastic mounts the Greeks had never laid eyes on before. Sunlight blazed and shone off armor, shields, and spears. A buzzing cacophony rose up from drums and trumpets, flutes and cymbals, and voices shouting in a thousand barbarian tongues. But Leonidas had planned a show of his own to greet the Persians. When their mounted scouts rode up to the middle gate, they found the Spartans there. They had removed their armor and stacked their arms. Some were exercising. Others sat on the wall and combed their long hair. Spartans completely ignored the Persians and allowed them to see everything they wanted. After the scouts sped back to Xerxes and described the strange sight, he was perplexed. The great king turned to Demaratus and demanded an explanation. According to Herodotus, the exiled Spartan king replied, 
It is my greatest endeavor, O king, to speak truth in your presence. Now hear me once more. These men are come to fight with us for the passage, and for that they are preparing. For it is their custom to dress up their hair whenever they are about to put their lives in jeopardy. Moreover, I tell you that if you overcome these and what remains behind at Sparta, there is no other nation among men, O king, that will abide and withstand you. Now are you face to face with the noblest royalty and city and the most valiant men in Hellas. Xerxes scoffed at Demaratus's words. He waited for four days, calculating that panic would grip the Greeks and they would flee from the pass. According to Plutarch, some time during this period of waiting, Xerxes sent an emissary to Leonidas to demand the Greeks give up their arms. The Spartans were already famous for what the other Greeks dubbed their laconic wit, their terse yet eloquent responses. Leonidas's answer to the Persian ambassador is one of the most famous examples. Molon Labe, he said, come and take them. Another reason for the great king to wait was so that his fleet could catch up to his army. Its arrival on the fourth day must have been just as impressive and fearsome a show for the Athenians at Artemisium as the appearance of the host was for the Greeks at Thermopylae. The Athenians would have first spotted an immense cloud of multicolored sails filling the northern horizon. Then they would have seen the bright summer sun glinting off the blades of tens of thousands of oars as they dipped rhythmically in and out of the sea. At last, the sleek black shapes of the ships would have hove into view, long and low in the water, white foam flecking at their bows. The Persian fleet was so massive that none of the available local harbors could hold all of it. Instead, its squadrons crowded anchorages in a great arc stretching from Athetai on the mainland shore opposite Artemisium north to Cape Sepias and beyond. The Greeks had created a line of communications between their land and sea forces. From Artemisium, a fast thirty-oared galley, captained by an Athenian named Ambronikos, sped across sixty kilometers of sea to Thermopylae to inform Leonidas of the coming of the Persian armada. On the fifth day following the arrival of the Persians at Thermopylae, great King Xerxes at last realized that the Greeks had no intention of fleeing. He first had his throne set up on a spot where he had a good view of the middle gate. Then he commanded his regiments of Medes and Kissians to attack. He still underestimated the Greeks, though, because he gave his troops explicit instructions to capture them alive and bring them to him in chains. As the Medes and Kissians were massing, a local Greek raced up to the Spartans at the middle gate wall. Beware, he breathlessly warned them. The enemy are so numerous that when they loose their bows, their arrows will blot out the sun. A Spartan named Dinakes then turned to his comrades and lightheartedly declared, Our friend here brings us good news. We will fight our battle in the shade. The Medes and Kissians advanced coolly and confidently toward the middle gate. They were Iranians, second only in status to the Persians themselves. Furthermore, they were fighting directly under the eye of their royal master. Unfortunately, Herodotus does not provide us with many details of the fighting itself. We can only try to reconstruct what happened from what we know of Persian and Greek warfare, as well as the situation at Thermopylae. I imagine that the Medes and Kissians advanced to bow range of the middle gate set up a wall of their wicker shields, then shot a barrage of arrows at the Spartans. When they thought they had the enemy sufficiently softened up, 
squads and companies of Medes and Kissians surged out from behind their shield wall and charged forward, determined to carry out their king's orders to capture the Spartans. But the Spartans were waiting for them. The Kissians and Medes ran into a line of unyielding bronze shields and thrusting spears in the hands of the hardest, deadliest hand-to-hand fighters in the ancient world. The great king's warriors fought bravely, but Herodotus stresses that they were woefully overmatched. They retreated, leaving their dead and wounded strewn at the Phocian wall. After the defeat of these first assaults, the great king and his commanders flung more troops into the fray. The fighting lasted the rest of that hot, dusty August day. It settled into a bloody pattern, a hail of arrows, a spasm of hand-to-hand combat thrusting spears, stabbing swords, chopping axes, then the Persians in flight with the Greeks still standing steadfast at the middle gate. So dismayed was Xerxes at the failure of his troops that he leapt off his throne three times. For his part, Leonidas rotated the various Greek contingents so that each took its turn at the wall. In this way, there were always fresh hope lights to face the Persian onslaughts. Why was the Persians' signature tactic, their arrow storm, so ineffective at Thermopylae. The Persian imperial army had in its ranks the finest archers of the ancient world, and they could shoot at the Greeks at will. There are three reasons, I think, for why the Persians could do so little damage to their enemies with their preferred weapon system. The first reason is that the narrow confines of the pass prevented the Persians from bringing a sufficient number of archers into line to bring down a truly overwhelming barrage of arrows. Contrary to what the local Greek had warned Dinakis, they could not, in fact, blot out the sun. The second reason is that the Phocian wall provided the defenders with excellent cover. Standing or crouching behind it, with their shields raised, the Greek hope lights left very little flesh exposed to incoming missiles. Finally, if the Persian archers closed the range to enhance the accuracy and striking power of their arrows, they made themselves vulnerable to sudden charges from the Greeks. Later in the 5th century BCE, the Spartans had their youngest, fittest hopelites run out of the phalanx to attack and chase off missile-armed enemies. They could already have been using this tactic at Thermopylae. Some of the better-trained and disciplined Greek contingents in Leonidas's army, for example the 500 Tegeans, whom even the Spartans regarded as excellent hopelites, could have employed similar techniques. The Battle of Thermopylae might have witnessed several marathons in miniature. At last, great King Xerxes committed his best troops to the attack. The mauled regiments of Medes and Kissians withdrew, and the western end of the pass filled with the serried ranks of the immortals. Led by their general Hydarnes, the crack bodyguards of the great king paraded in perfect order. Spears in their hands, bows and arrow-packed quivers on their shoulders. Each guardsman wore gorgeous robes in the Persian style, and beneath possibly a corselet of iron scales. Most impressively and outlandishly to the watching Greeks, each wore a fortune in gold jewelry. Leonidas ordered his Spartans to the Phocian Wall. The first day of the Battle of Thermopylae would climax with a clash of warrior elites. The immortals came on. At 200 meters, they halted and poured their arrows into the rows of overlapping, lambda-emblazoned shields at the Phocian Wall. Then they took up their spears and advanced. The Spartans now unleashed a stratagem that only they had the training and battlecraft to even contemplate attempting. Suddenly, they turned and fled. 
Thinking they had triumphed, the immortals surged ahead, their order formation breaking apart as individuals in small groups raced to catch and cut down the fleeing foe. At a signal, the Spartans turned, reformed their phalanx, and charged. The immortals were as professional and war-hardened as any soldiers in the ancient world, but they were taken by surprise. Moreover, Herodotus stresses they were outmatched in close combat skill by the Spartans, and their spears were shorter. The carnage must have been tremendous. In the end, the immortals gave up and retreated, leaving the Spartans in firm possession of the pass. For the Persians, the result of the first day's fighting at Thermopylae were dispiriting. As always happened when Persian infantry fought face-to-face -face against Greek hoplites, they had suffered far heavier casualties than they had inflicted. In addition, they had not found an alternative to launching frontal attacks against the middle gate. On the second day of the battle, Xerxes and his generals could only repeat these attacks, hoping they would eventually wear down the Greeks by attrition and at last achieve the desired breakthrough. But the defense remained as steadfast as ever. The pattern of attack and repulse was repeated again and again until finally the Persians drew off. The middle gate must now have been a place of horrific sights sounds and smells. Piles of spear-mangled Persian bodies covered by legions of swarming black flies, screams and wails from the dying, the stink of spilled entrails and voided bowels. While the great king's army was battering uselessly at Leonidas's hope flights at the middle gate, his navy was being fought to a standstill by Themistocles's triremes. In two great fleet actions, in the straits between Artemisium and the main Persian anchorage at Aphetai, the Athenians and allied Greeks sank or captured more enemy ships than they themselves lost. Worse still for the Persians, the great king's admirals had dispatched 200 ships to go around the east coast of the island of Euboea and come at Artemisium from behind. Along the way, these ships were struck by a storm and utterly destroyed. The first two days of fighting at Thermopylae appeared to vindicate the decision by the Greek resistance to send Leonidas's advance guard to hold the pass. By the end of the second day of fighting at Thermopylae and Artemisium, Great King Xerxes and his Persians were facing a crisis. The army had been stuck before the middle gate for six days. For all the efficiencies of its commissariat, the enormous Persian army was beginning to exhaust all of the available local sources of food, fodder, and water. Unless the army could force the pass soon, it would need to withdraw in order to resupply itself. By the time this was done, and the Persians able to return to Thermopylae, the main Greek armies would have come up. They would then face 10,000 Spartan hoplites instead of 300. No help appeared to be forthcoming from the fleet, which was blocked from advancing past Artemisium. Yet now the Persians' great strengths in espionage and the operational level of war came to their rescue. Even while the fighting had been raging at Thermopylae and Artemisium, the great king's spies had fanned out across central Greece, seeking information about how to turn the Thermopylae position. At last, at the end of the second day, they brought in a Greek trader who told Xerxes and his generals about the Unapaya path around Thermopylae. Even better, in exchange for an enormous reward, he offered to lead the Persians along it. The trader's name, Ephialtes, remains infamous. Ephialtes is the modern Greek word for nightmare. Great King Xerxes recognized the priceless opportunity he was being offered. He ordered Hydarnas to take the immortals immediately along the Anapaya and fall upon Leonidas's army from the rear.
Herodotus records that Hydarnas and his elite guards set out from the Persian camp about the hour when the lamps were lit, in other words, at dusk. I don't think modern historians have adequately stressed the impressiveness of the feat of arms that the immortals were about to accomplish. A night march through enemy country followed by an assault on a defended position is about the most difficult of all military operations. The history of warfare is replete with examples of failure. It is a testimony to the skill and supreme professionalism of the Persian immortals that they were able to accomplish it perfectly at Thermopylae. Through the hours of darkness, the immortals climbed the thickly forested slopes of Mount Calidromo. At dawn, they reached the summit of the Anopaya. Posted there were the 1,000 Phokian Hopelites who had volunteered to guard the path. Herodotus writes that the immortals were marching so stealthily that the Greeks were only alerted to their approach by the sounds of fallen leaves rustling and crackling beneath the guardsmen's feet. The Phokians sprang up and began hurriedly donning their armor. Hydarnas hesitated. He had not expected to encounter any enemies at all on the Anapaya. Furthermore, he feared that the hope lights he glimpsed in the dawn half-light were Spartans. Ephialtes reassured him that these were other, less formidable Greeks. The commander of the immortals regained his nerve. His guardsmen instantly shook out into battle formation and began pumping arrows into their enemies. The Phokians now betrayed their amateurishness. Believing that they themselves were the targets of the immortals, they abandoned their blocking position on the Anapaya and retreated further up Mount Calidromo. Seeing the way clear, Hydarnas ordered his men to ignore the retreating Phokians and continue their march. The immortals were soon descending the Anapaya path and bearing down on the rear of Leonidas's little army at the middle gate. The Spartan king learned of the approaching immortals shortly after dawn. According to Herodotus, his first warning came from Megistias, a famous seer who foresaw doom in the entrails of the day's sacrifices. More realistic warnings came from deserters from the Persian army, and finally, Phokian messengers hurrying down the Anapaya path. The Greeks at once held a council of war. Leonidas ordered most of the Greek contingents to retreat, but he and his Spartans would remain. The idea developed immediately after Thermopylae and continues to this day that Leonidas chose to stay because the Spartan military code prohibited retreat. In other words, he decided to make a last stand as soon as he learned that the Persians had turned the middle gate position and would surround the Spartans. But as the classicist James Evans points out, nothing in the Spartan military ethos before or after Thermopylae precluded retreat. The Spartans condemned running away, surrendering, or even being defeated. They did not disallow retreating under orders, or if the military situation demanded it. I think the more likely reason for Leonidas's decision was that he wanted to provide a rear guard to protect his retreating troops. If the Persians were allowed to move through Thermopylae unhindered, their cavalry would be able to catch up to and overrun the Greeks in the open country south of the pass. In addition to the Spartans, the Greek rearguard was rounded out by two other contingents. One consisted of the Thespians. Although the 700 Thespians represented their city-state's entire hopelight phalanx, according to Herodotus, they simply refused to leave and forsake their Spartan comrades in arms. The Thespians did appear to have been an especially stubborn lot. Indeed, they became something like Greek specialists in last stands. They fought to the death at least twice more, at Delium in 424 BCE and at the Nemea in 394 BCE. 
The other contingent was the 400 Thebans. According to Herodotus, Leonidas kept them against their will as hostages. Numerous historians, both ancient and modern, have strenuously questioned Herodotus on this point. Already, in the first century CE, Plutarch noted that if the Thebans really were hostages, Leonidas would have been better off sending them away with the retreating contingents. More recently, historians and classicists have pointed out Herodotus's persistent anti-Theban bias. This bias could have been the product of a combination of personal predilection and the fact that Herodotus's sources on Thermopylae were overwhelmingly Athenian or Spartan. Instead of hostages, the Thebans who remained with Leonidas were most likely the citizens of that city-state who had rejected its medizing drift and had cast their lot with the Greek resistance. Since Thebes would undoubtedly go over to the Persians as soon as Thermopylae fell, they must have felt there was no point in going home. Great King Xerxes initiated the fighting of the third day of the Battle of Thermopylae at what Herodotus identifies as the hour when the marketplace is just about full presumably mid-morning, about 9 or 10 o'clock. Once again, Persian troops filled the western end of the pass, then advanced toward the Phocian Wall at the middle gate. This time, Leonidas did not wait for the assault. Instead, he formed his thousand-odd men into a phalanx and led them beyond the wall, out into the wider part of the pass. Even though Herodotus states they did so knowing that they went to their deaths, Leonidas's move was, I think, consistent with fighting a rearguard action. By advancing in phalanx, he was hoping to surprise the Persians and make them hesitate, thus buying more time for his retreating men, including his own rearguard, to get away. But the Persians were determined to finally end Greek resistance. Xerxes had ordered officers armed with whips to stand behind their troops and drive them forward with lashes. For their part, the Greeks fought with the reckless abandon of desperate men. The fighting was therefore ferocious. The Persians' losses were even heavier than the first two days of the battle. Their dead included two half-brothers of Xerxes. But eventually, most of the Greeks' spears were broken and they resorted to their swords. At this moment, Leonidas was killed. Any hope the survivors of the rear guard would be able to safely retreat now vanished, for no one was left to give the order. What's more, the Spartans would not fall back until they had recovered their king's body. They succeeded only after much pushing. Herodotus uses the word otismos, in which they flung back the enemy four times. By then, Hydarnas and the immortals had arrived behind the middle gate. When the surviving Greeks learned of it, they retreated past the Phocian wall to Colonos Hill. In a parting shot against the Thebans, Herodotus states that they now broke away from the other Greeks and flung themselves at the feet of the Persians, begging for mercy. More likely, the Thebans joined with the Thespians and Spartans in fighting to the end, which they did with their swords, their fists, even their teeth. The Persians formed a ring around the hill and at last were able to bring down truly overwhelming arrow barrages until the last Greek was slain. As the final act of the Battle of Thermopylae was playing out on Colonos Hill, the Athenian captain Ambronikos was casting off in his 30 oared galley. He sped across the sea to Artemisium and informed Themistocles of the fate of Leonidas and his army. The Persians were now free to overrun the ports and harbors of the Greek resistance. Although the fleet was undefeated, Themistocles immediately ordered it to abandon Artemisium and withdraw south. 
When the last of the fighting at Thermopylae was over, Xerxes toured the battlefield. According to Herodotus, the Persian dead in the three-day battle amounted to 20,000, the Greek 4,000. These numbers are, I think, too high, although the proportions are probably correct. Nevertheless, the ground before, around, and behind the middle gate must have been covered with corpses. The great king was eager to find the body of Leonidas. When it was discovered and brought to him, Xerxes ordered it beheaded, and the head set up on a pike where all his soldiers could see it. Herodotus states that this act was not normal for the Persians, who treated valiant enemies with great honor. Leonidas's obstinate resistance had enraged Xerxes. He wanted to make the Spartan king an example and a warning to all the other Greeks. For all of Xerxes's dismay at the Persian losses at Thermopylae, the battle was a great victory for him and a disaster for the Greek resistance. The Greeks had intended Leonidas's advance guard to hold the pass until the main army could come up and make the position impregnable. In reality, the Spartan king could only hold out for seven days, just three of which had involved actual fighting. Furthermore, while the Greeks had shown the tactical superiority of their hoplites over Persian infantry archers, they had been trumped by their enemies' strengths in espionage and operational warfare. Xerxes and his generals demonstrated they knew how to make full use of their victory. The days after Thermopylae witnessed a Persian blitzkrieg through central and southern Greece. The Persians first overran Doris and Phocis, the regions around the pass itself. As punishment for the part they had played in the battle, the Phocians saw their lands thoroughly ravaged and burned. The invaders then swept south into Boeotia. As the Greek resistance had feared, Thebes immediately medized. Its formidable hope-light phalanx joined Xerxes's order of battle. Then, just a week after the death of Leonidas at the middle gate, Persian outriders reached Athens. They entered an eerily silent city. For, after abandoning Artemisium, Themistocles' fleet had evacuated the entire Athenian population to the island of Salamis and the city-state of Trozen in the Peloponnese. Only a few Athenian holdouts stubbornly garrisoned the Acropolis, the high hill on which the ruins of the Parthenon now stand. The Persians made quick work of them, using fire arrows to burn down the wooden palisade the diehards had built, then storming the hilltop and massacring them all. With Athens in his hands, Xerxes sent a messenger rushing back to Susa to proclaim the victorious progress of his campaign. For their part, the Greeks were uncertain and divided about what to do next. With the Olympian and Carnean festivals finally over, the Spartans and Peloponnesians had assembled their armies. Instead of seeking battle with the Persians, they had marched no further than the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow bridge of land connecting the Peloponnese with the rest of mainland Greece, and began building a wall there. The Spartans and their allies clearly intended to defend only their homelands, abandoning Athens and Attica to the enemy. The Greek fleet had retreated to Salamis. At a conference, its admirals decided to withdraw to the Isthmus of Corinth and help the army in its defense. But then Themistocles went in private to the Spartan admiral Eurybiadas and persuaded him to stand and fight at Salamis. Great King Xerxes was also conferring with his generals and admirals about their next moves. They decided their fleet should bring on a final showdown with the Greeks off Salamis. Their reasons for doing so were strategically sound. First, after crushing the Greek navy, the Persians could send most of their own fleet home, keeping only their best squadrons in the campaigning theater. 
This reduction would help to ease the logistical burden of keeping the enormous Persian forces supplied, especially over the winter. Second, with the Greek fleet out of the way, the entire coastline of the Peloponnese would be open to Persian amphibious raids and invasions. The Persian army might not have to fight its way through the Isthmus of Corinth at all. The Persians were then further encouraged to seek battle by a cunning trick of Themistocles. The Athenians secretly sent his most trusted slave, Sinikos, to the Persian admirals with a message that the Greek fleet was gripped by panic and about to withdraw to the Isthmus of Corinth. If the Persians rode to Salamis immediately, they would catch the Greek ships in flight and score a great victory. It was the Persians, however, who fell into Themistocles's trap. At Artemisium, the Athenians had proven themselves more than a match for even the best squadrons of the imperial navy. However, they could not beat the Persians' greater numbers. In the narrow straits between the island of Salamis and the Attican shore, Themistocles recognized the perfect solution. As dawn broke on a bright sunny day in early September, the great king's armada packed into the channel, fully expecting to fall upon the fleeing Greeks. Instead, Xerxes's Phoenician, Cypriot, Egyptian, and Ionian captains were surprised and horrified to see the Athenian triremes bearing down on them at ramming speed. Their greater numbers now became a hindrance, not an asset, as their ships became tangled and got in each other's way. The Athenians and the other Greeks picked their targets. At the end of the day-long sea fight, the Persians were utterly worsted. Although Herodotus himself gave no figures for losses, a historian of the 1st century BCE, Diodorus, states that the Persians lost 200 ships and the Greeks 40. Whatever the precise numbers, the Persians lost their best ships and crews, leaving the survivors utterly demoralized. The Battle of Salamis was an extraordinary Greek victory and the turning point of the second Persian invasion. It crippled one arm of the invasion force. Without their navy, the Persians could not carry out amphibious operations against the Peloponnese. They now had no choice except to try to fight their way through the Greek armies at the Isthmus of Corinth. Equally importantly, victory at Salamis gave the Greeks a chance to shift from defense to offense at sea. Their fleet could now take the fight to the enemy anywhere in the Aegean, even the coasts of Asia Minor. The fear of the enemy navy striking the shores of his empire compelled great King Xerxes to abandon Greece and return to Asia. If the Greeks took control of the Dardanelles, he would be marooned in Europe and isolated from the imperial power centers. During the winter of 480 BCE, Xerxes left for home, taking with him the bulk of his army. Before departing, the king ordered his most trusted general, Mardonius, to complete the defeat of the Greek resistance. From Xerxes' grand army, Mardonius picked out a large force of elite formations. After their victory at Salamis, the Greeks of the resistance fell once again into bickering amongst themselves over strategy. The Spartans and their Peloponnesian allies had no intention of moving out from behind their wall at the Isthmus of Corinth. Instead, they looked to the Greek fleet to attack the Dardanelles and Ionia. They hoped that by threatening Mardonius's line of communications and possibly raising another revolt among the Greek city-states of Asia Minor, the Persian army would be forced to withdraw without the need for a land campaign. To stress their commitment to a full-scale naval offensive, the Spartans assigned one of their kings, Leotychidas, to command the Greek resistance fleet. 
This strategy should have suited the Athenians, as their navy would have played the decisive role. In fact, they were angered by it. They had just returned to their devastated city, but were vulnerable to a counterattack by the Persians. They wanted the Greek field army to advance from the Isthmus to defend Attica. In typical Persian style, Mardonius learned of these divisions and moved quickly to exploit them. He sent Alexander of Macedon as an ambassador to Athens. The Macedonian king informed the Athenians that great king Xerxes was willing not just to make peace with them, but also to restore all of their territory and guarantee their autonomy within his empire. In front of representatives from Sparta, the Athenians ostentatiously rejected this offer. In response, Mardonius marched down from northern Greece with his army, and the Athenians were forced to evacuate again. Mardonius then made a second offer of peace. This time, the Athenians sent envoys to the Spartans to reproach them for not coming to Athens' defense. Moreover, the Athenians hinted they were considering accepting the Persians' terms. The Spartans at last realized that if Athens capitulated to the great king, the Persians could use the Athenian navy to attack the Peloponnese. They immediately sent their army with 10,000 hoplites to fight Mardonius. The Spartans were joined by their Peloponnesian allies and all of the other remaining city-states of the resistance, including 8,000 Athenian hoplites spared from service with the fleet. In his history, Herodotus draws up a detailed muster list of this army. It totaled 38,700 hoplites, by far the largest force ever fielded by the Greeks up to that time. Its supreme commander was the Spartan Pausanias, regent for the boy king Pleistarchus, son of King Leonidas. For the army of Mardonius, Herodotus gives a figure of 300,000 Persians and 50,000 Greeks. Modern scholars believe this number to be much too high. Their best estimates give Mardonius command of 60 to 70,000 Persians and Medes and Greeks, including 10,000 cavalry. Upon learning that the Greeks had sallied from the Isthmus of Corinth in strength, Mardonius withdrew from Attica to the rolling plains of Boeotia, excellent ground for his cavalry. The two armies eventually confronted each other near the town of Plataea, with a river, the Asopus, dividing them. At first, Mardonius completely outgeneraled Pausanias, amply demonstrating Persian superiority in operational warfare. The Persian general avoided a pitched battle. He kept his footmen safely in a fortified camp on his side of the Asopus. He then sent his horsemen swarming the Greeks, harassing them with hit-and-run raids, cutting up their reinforcements, and raiding their supply lines. His plan was to harry the Greeks into retreat, which would damage their morale as well as provoke renewed divisions and infighting among the resistant city-states. It almost worked. After eleven days, the Greek army ran low on food and water. Pausanias ordered a nighttime retreat to safer ground closer to Plataea. During the night, the Greek army became badly disorganized and scattered. Mardonius now saw an opportunity to turn the retreat into a rout. He led his infantry across the Asopus. Unfortunately for the Persians, they found themselves facing the Spartans and Tegeans, who were covering the retreat of the rest of the Greek army. Advancing to bow range, the Persians set up a wall of wicker shields and shot storms of arrows at the Spartan and Tegean phalanx. According to Herodotus, as the arrows rained down, Pausanias was performing sacrifices. Until he could produce a good omen, the Hopelites could not charge. 
Sheltering behind their shields, the Greeks began taking increasingly heavy losses. At last, the Tegeans could not stand the barrage any longer. They sprang to their feet and rushed at the enemy. At the same moment, Pausanias received a propitious omen at last. With a shout, the Spartans charged. Mardonius had made the fatal mistake of exposing his infantry to a hopelight charge. His Persians nevertheless fought bravely. For a while, their wall of wicker shields held off the Spartans and Tegeans. Then the hopelights broke it down, got in among the Persian archers, and began slaughtering them. Mardonius was in the middle of the fray, riding a white horse. The Spartans reached him, dragged him off his mount, and killed him. With his death, the Persian army routed. At around the same time as the Battle of Plataea, according to Herodotus, on the very same day, the Greeks destroyed the remnants of the Persian navy. The Greek fleet, under the Spartan king Laotychidas, found the Persians at Mykal, on the coast of Asia Minor. Unwilling to face the Greeks at sea, the Persians had beached their galleys and deployed an army to protect them. Laotychidas landed his marines, defeated the Persian land forces, then burned the ships. The twin battles of Plataea and Mykal ended the second Persian invasion of Greece. They also enabled the Greeks to transform the Battle of Thermopylae from a clear-cut defeat into a heroic last stand that made final victory possible. At Thermopylae today stands a monument to Leonidas and the 300 Spartans. Erected in 1955 by the Greek government with financial support from Greek Americans, it is dominated by a bronze statue of the Spartan king, who is depicted heroically naked except for a Corinthian helmet, hoplon, sheathed sword, and upraised spear. On the statue's plinth are carved the words Molon Labe, come and take them, Leonidas's reply to the Persian demand that he and his men give up their arms. On a wall behind and below the statue is a frieze depicting the Spartans in battle. A nearby explanatory plaque reads, In the year 480 BC, in this sacred place called Thermopylae, was carried out the most astonishing and unequal battle between few Greeks and a million of Persians. This battle is a landmark in the world's history. 300 Spartans and 700 Thespians, under the orders of Leonidas king of Sparta, decided to fight against the Persians and win or die defending the freedom of their country. According to the historian Herodotus, the Persian army consisted of about 1,700,000 soldiers who were under the command of King Xerxes. The Persians asked the defenders to give their arms up, but Leonidas replied to them with heroic phrase, come and get them. This phrase has been, and always will be, a bright example for the generations to come of one's doing his duty for his country. This official monument reproduces all of the essential characteristics of the Thermopylae legend. The legend was launched by the Spartans themselves almost as soon as the second Persian invasion was over. In the course of preparing his histories, Herodotus visited the battlefield sometime in the middle of the 5th century. He recorded that the Spartans had already sponsored the erection of four monuments. The first and most prominent was a stone lion at the top of the hill of the last stand, meant to honor Leonidas. A lion was a traditional grave marker in ancient Greece, but this one was especially appropriate because of the parallel with the Spartan king's name, which means lion-like, or image of a lion. In addition to the lion, 
were three stelae, or stone columns, each inscribed with an epigram by Simonides, the greatest Greek poet of the day. The first stela's epigram commemorated all of the defenders killed at Thermopylae in the three days of battle. The third stela marked the grave of Megistias, the seer, who chose to stay and die with the Spartans even though he had foreknowledge of their doom. The second stela was raised just for the Spartan dead and bore perhaps the most famous of all ancient Greek couplets. O stranger, tell the Lacedaemonians that here we lie dead, obedient to their commands. The Spartans sponsored monuments not just at Thermopylae itself. They built others in their own city. One was a collective war memorial resembling a modern cenotaph. On it, the fallen Spartans were individually identified. The travel writer Pausanias the Paragete saw it in the 2nd century CE. The memorial deviated radically from normal Spartan practice, which was to bury the dead at the spots where they had fallen. It demonstrated that the Spartans held the Thermopylae 300 in particularly high esteem. Unsurprisingly, the Spartans singled out Leonidas for even further marks of honor. In the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Thermopylae, the Spartans could not recover his body. According to Herodotus, they instead fashioned a simulacrum of it, an eidolon, and brought it to Sparta for burial. Forty years after the Persian Wars, the Spartans returned to the pass and discovered what they were convinced were the remains of the king. These were brought back to Sparta and reburied with all due pomp and circumstance. Most importantly, while all Spartan kings were worshipped as semi-divine heroes after their deaths, the cult of Leonidas was something special. Over his grave was raised an impressive temple, the substantial remains of which can still be seen today. In addition, he became the focus of a religious festival, the Leonida, which the Spartans celebrated for centuries after Thermopylae. There were two final monuments in Sparta connected to Thermopylae. One was a religious sanctuary dedicated to all of the Greeks, the Hellenion. The other was a portico known as the Persian Stoa, which was made from spoils taken during the Persian Wars and featured remarkable figures carved in white marble of notable Persians, including Mardonius and Queen Artemisia of Halicarnassus. Taken collectively, all of these memorials sent a clear message. The Spartans of Thermopylae had died for the freedom of all the Greeks. These monuments were neither the most enduring nor most influential element of the Spartan legend of Thermopylae. Rather, it was the Spartan oral tradition that ancient writers like Herodotus then set down on paper and preserved. This tradition certainly included all of the memorable stories I've quoted about the Spartans at the battle, including Leonidas's reply to the Persian demand to surrender and Dinakis's quip about fighting in the shade of the enemy arrow storm. But at its heart was a prophecy from the Oracle of Delphi. At the beginning of the war, the Spartans, like the rest of the mainland Greeks, had consulted the priestess of Apollo. As recorded by Herodotus, the Pythia's reply was, Fated it is for you, ye dwellers in wide-wade Sparta. Either your city must fall, that now is mighty and famous, wasted by Persian men, or the land of fair Lacedaemon mourns for a king that is dead from Heracles's line descended. For your foe neither bulls nor lions can conquer. Mighty he comes as Zeus, and shall not be stayed in his coming. One of the two he will take, and rend his quarry asunder. 
According to the prophecy, then, either the Persians would destroy Sparta or a Spartan king would die. Knowing it, Leonidas chose to stay behind on the third day of Thermopylae, certain that his and his men's deaths would save Sparta and, by extension, all of Greece. An even more far-reaching interpretation is that Leonidas had the prophecy in mind right from the moment when the resistance Greeks were making their plans to face the Persians. He and his men willingly went to Thermopylae with the knowledge that their deaths would save their city and their country. The Battle of Thermopylae, then, was not an advance guard. It was a suicide mission. For the ancient Greeks, the story of the prophecy was powerfully convincing. Herodotus himself states that he was convinced Leonidas chose to remain at Thermopylae because of it. Moreover, numerous other stories recorded by other writers reinforce the idea that Leonidas not only expected, but intended to die from the outset. Plutarch records several in his collection of sayings of the Spartans. One has other Spartans asking the king if he indeed plans to block the Persians at the pass, and he replies, ostensibly that, but in reality to die for Greece. Another, famous even today, has Leonidas, when his Spartans were having breakfast on the third day of the battle, declare, Eat well, for tonight we dine in Hades. Yet there are also important reasons for us to be skeptical of the prophecy story. Herodotus stresses that the resistance Greeks planned Thermopylae Artemisium to be their main effort to block the Persian invasion. All of the Greeks' actions during the land-sea battle, including on the fateful third day, were consistent with the actions of a blocking force. In fact, Thermopylae Artemisium was the linchpin of the Greek resistance's entire strategy. They were at a loss about what to do next after the Persians forced the pass far sooner than they expected. Given this, I think that the Spartans invented the story of the prophecy after the Battle of Thermopylae in order to give a new and different meaning to the event. By the time Herodotus was making his inquiries just 30 years or so after the battle, the prophecy story had become widely known and accepted. So why did the Spartans create the legend of a glorious, even necessary defeat? I can think of two reasons. First, they wanted to repair the damage that Thermopylae had caused to their military reputations. The Persian victory had badly hurt the Spartans' image as the greatest warriors of the Greek world. In the Spartans' new narrative, the third day of Thermopylae was no longer a failed rearguard action. It was a last stand by warrior heroes who preferred death to defeat. Second, the Spartans wanted to assert their claim to be the leaders of the Greek world. As soon as the Persians had been beaten, Sparta and Athens had begun vying for this leadership. They based their claims on the contributions they had made to the defeat of the invaders. The Athenians could make a strong case they had played the decisive part by pointing to their brilliant victories at Marathon and Salamis. The Spartans countered with Plataea and the legend of Thermopylae. By the time Herodotus was writing his histories around the 430s, the rivalry between the two great city-states was at its height. In 431, they would plunge into the long, devastating conflict called the Peloponnesian War. On the question of which Greek city-state did most to defeat Persia, Herodotus himself was in no doubt. In spite of the Spartans' feats of arms at Thermopylae and Plataea, it was, he writes, the Athenians who, choosing freedom, roused the Greek states that had not yet prevailed. And it was they who, after the gods, 
repulsed the great king. Yet, in the twenty-five centuries since the Greek-Persian Wars, it has been the Spartans and their Thermopylae who have won out. In the second century BCE, mainland Greece fell to the new superpower of the ancient world, Rome. The Romans, however, regarded the conquered Greeks as cultural models to emulate. An important part of this process of emulation was an enthusiastic embrace of the Thermopylae legend as constructed by the Spartans. For Roman writers of rhetorical and philosophical works, Thermopylae became the purest example of heroic courage and patriotic self-sacrifice. By far the most important of these writers was the orator and philosopher Cicero. In the first century BCE, in a major work, the Tusculan Disputations, he compares the valor of the early Roman legions favorably to the Thermopylae 300, then follows up with mentions of Leonidas's advice to breakfast well and dine in hell, and finally, Dinakis's boast to fight in the shade. Most importantly, he translated Simonides' epigram on the Spartan dead at Thermopylae into Latin, commonly rendered into English as Go tell the Spartans passer-by that here obedient to their laws we lie, Cicero's translation would have an enormous influence right up to the present. Most notably, he places patriae, fatherland, at the center of the second line for emphasis. He therefore accomplishes a critical reworking of the Thermopylae legend, emphasizing heroic death in the service of one's country. The Romans' embrace of the Thermopylae legend ensured that it would become embedded in the classical heritage that has been passed down to us. By the time the Renaissance of the 14th to 16th centuries brought a new enthusiasm for classical culture and learning, Thermopylae had already become, for educated Europeans, the byword for glorious noble defeat. In 1580, the great French essayist Michel de Montaigne perceptively wrote, Thus, there are defeats which are triumphs, the equal of victories, even those four sister victories, the most beautiful the eye of the sun has ever gazed upon. Salamis, Plataea, Mycal, and Sicily would never dare to set all their combined glories up against the glorious defeat of King Leonidas and his men at the Pass of Thermopylae. Strikingly, these lines appear in an essay titled Of Cannibals, and Montaigne was favorably comparing the fortitude of the indigenous peoples of the New World, confronted by European colonists, to the Spartans facing great King Xerxes. The Thermopylae legend reached new heights of prominence during the Age of Revolutions that closed the 18th and opened the 19th century. In the Spartans' stand for freedom against the tyranny of great King Xerxes, the French revolutionaries saw an exemplar of their own struggle against the monarchies of Europe. Furthermore, Leonidas served for them as the ultimate model for patriotic commitment. In the late 1790s, a spate of popular pamphlets, songs, and plays, such as Joseph-Marie Loisel Tréogat's Le Combat de Thermopylas ou l'École de Guerrières, The Battle of Thermopylae or the School of Warriors, explicitly drew these comparisons and parallels. Unsurprisingly, the revolutionaries who made the most explicit use of the Thermopylae legend were those of the Greek War of Independence against the Ottoman Empire. The Greek cause was taken up by champions from all over Europe called Philhellenes, who combined a commitment to revolutionary ideals with passionate nostalgia for classical Greece. The most famous Philhellene of all was the English romantic poet George Gordon, Lord Byron. In his wildly successful poem, 
Child Harold's Pilgrimage, Byron evoked Thermopylae to inspire 19th century Greeks and their supporters in the fight for freedom. Fair Greece, sad relic of departed worth, immortal though no more, thou fallen great, who now shall lead thy scattered children forth, and long accustomed bondage uncreate, not such thy sons, who alone did await, the hopeless warriors of a willing doom, in bleak Thermopylae's sepulchral strait, oh, who that gallant spirit shall resume, leap from Eurotas's banks, and call them from the tomb. Perhaps we should not be all that surprised that early 19th century revolutionary patriots should take up the Thermopylae legend. The comparisons and parallels with their own struggles appeared clear, even obvious. But the legend would subsequently crop up later in the century in far more surprising places. One such place was the Dakota Territory in June 1876. At the Battle of the Little Bighorn, or, as Native Americans call it, the Greasy Grass, an army of Cheyenne and Lakota braves annihilated a force from the United States Army 7th Cavalry, led by George Armstrong Custer. This defeat, which shocked the American government and public, almost immediately underwent what the historian Chris Carey dubs Thermopolization. On July 12, 1876, just three weeks after the battle, the New York Herald newspaper wrote of Custer, the deeds of our young captain are worthy of as much honor as those of Leonidas, and will be remembered as long. Just three days after that, the first epic poem about the battle, Custer's Last Charge, appeared. Many others quickly followed. In late September 1876, Galaxy Magazine published a short biography of Custer, which eulogized his death with these words. To Custer alone was it given to join a romantic life of perfect success to a death of perfect heroism, to unite the splendors of Austerlitz and Thermopylae, to charge like Murat, to die like Leonidas. The process of Thermopylization would be applied to another, even greater defeat of Western soldiers at the hands of so-called primitive tribal warriors. On January 11, 1879, beneath a rocky hill called Isandalwana in Zululand, the Zulu army wiped out a column of British redcoats and their colonial auxiliaries. Within a month of the battle, poems depicting the last stand of the British troops as an African Thermopylae appeared in newspapers in the Cape Colony and in Britain. After defeating the Zulus, the British erected a series of memorials on the battlefield. The one to the Natal Carabiniers, a unit of colonial troops, bears a poem which reads, in part, Neither praise nor blame add to their epitaph, but let it be simple as that which marked Thermopylae. Tell it in England those that pass us by, here faithful to their charge, her soldiers lie. The last four lines echo Cicero's Latin translation of the epitaph by Simonides for the Spartan dead. At first glance, the Little Bighorn and Isandalwana appear to map uneasily onto Thermopylae. After all, the 7th Cavalry and the British Redcoats were the invaders who were out to conquer the lands of indigenous peoples. George Armstrong Custer and Henry Pauline, the British commander at Isandalwana, were hardly the stuff of Leonidas. And the United States of America and Victorian Britain were the empires that were bringing overwhelming force to bear on the Native Americans and the Zulus. Yet the Thermopylae legend 
did perform one indispensable service for the losers of these battles. It wiped away the shock and shame of an unexpected defeat at the hands of inferior enemies. In both cases, evoking Thermopylae acted like a kind of philosopher's stone that transmuted the lead of humiliating defeat into the gold of glorious patriotic self-sacrifice. The ease with which battles like the Little Bighorn and Isandalwana could be thermopolized for the benefit of imperial aggressors demonstrates the legend's astonishing malleability and adaptability. In the middle of the 20th century, the Spartans and the Thermopylae legend were dragged into the darkest and most sordid depths by the Nazis. Hitler and his followers, including not a few of Germany's finest classicists and ancient historians, regarded the Spartans as worthy precursors of the Aryan master race. They admired the Spartans' militarism, their systematic centuries-long domination and exploitation of their neighbors, and their uncompromising xenophobia. Hitler reserved a particular fascination for the Spartan practice of eugenics. On the Spartans' custom of exposing, in other words, flinging into a deep chasm, infants whom state authorities had considered too feeble and physically imperfect, Hitler wrote approvingly, the exposure of the sick, weak, deformed children, in short, their destruction, was more decent and in truth a thousand times more human than the wretched insanity of our day, which preserves the most pathological subject. During the Second World War, the Nazis liberally evoked the Thermopylae legend, especially on the Eastern Front. There the Germans were modern-day Spartans, making a do-or-die stand for Western civilization against the Asiatic hordes of the Judeo-Bolshevik Empire of Stalin. Never mind that it was the Nazis who had launched a war of annihilation against the Soviet Union with Operation Barbarossa in June 1941. The nadir of the Nazis' exploitation of Thermopylae occurred during the Battle of Stalingrad. For five months, from August 1942 to February 1943, the Germans and Soviets had been locked in a ferocious struggle for this strategic city on the Volga River. On November 19, 1942, the Red Army had launched a devastating counterattack that had led to the encirclement of two German armies in and around Stalingrad. All German attempts to rescue these troops had failed, and by January 1943, the end was in sight. On January 30, 1943, Hermann Göring, the second most powerful figure in the Nazi hierarchy, addressed the surrounded German troops by radio. He explicitly summoned the Thermopylae legend, notably Simonides' famed epigram over the Spartan dead. One day it will be said thus, When you come to Germany, tell them you have seen us lying at Stalingrad, as the law has commanded, the law of the security of our people. And this law each of you carries in your breast, the law to die for Germany, for the life of Germany is the hope of every law. And not just you, the young soldiers on your heroic mission, your sacrifice is obligatory for the whole German folk. In its way, the speech was brilliant, concludes Chris Carey. It linked the Thermopylae legend of heroic, patriotic self-sacrifice to the survival of Germany and the Aryan master race. Yet, in the end, Goering's speech failed spectacularly. Far from interpreting it as a ringing summons to fight to the death, the troops in Stalingrad heard the speech and abandoned any remaining hope of rescue. 
On February 2, 1942, the remnants of German 6th Army and 4th Panzer Army surrendered. Far from heroically perishing in a final glorious charge like Leonidas, the German commander, Field Marshal Paulus, allowed Russian soldiers to drag him out of the fetid cellar in which he had set up his last headquarters. Finally, the Soviets arranged a media blitz that showed 235,000 German troops and allies marching off to captivity. The Nazi attempt to thermopolize Stalingrad was an embarrassing debacle. The troubling link connecting the Thermopylae legend with extreme right-wing and neo-Nazi movements has persisted until today. In North America, white supremacist groups regularly make use of Thermopylae imagery, such as stylized Corinthian helmets. Moulin Labe has become a common slogan on their t-shirts, bumper stickers, and flags. In Italy, the neo-fascist Alianza Nazionale Party has used the image of the Spartans at the pass on propaganda posters combined with the words, defend your values, your civilization, your neighborhood. But perhaps the most noteworthy extremist evocation of the legend occurs in Greece itself. The avowedly neo-Nazi Golden Dawn Party holds a torchlit gathering at Thermopylae every year. In 2015, the prominent Golden Dawn figure and member of European Parliament Eleftherios Sinadinos, an ex-Greek army general, declared to the gathering, the message of Leonidas, Molon Labe, is as timely today as ever for everything tormenting Greece. For right-wing extremists and neo-Nazis, the tormentors that today must be stopped by a Thermopylae-like stand include liberals, socialists, governments out to disarm their citizens, dark-skinned immigrants, refugees, and Muslims. Today, the Thermopylae legend is known to most people through mass media popular entertainment. Novels, comic books, and movies are of course meant principally to entertain, but they are also products of the cultural and political preoccupations of their makers, as well as the times in which they were made. This certainly applies to the most recent popular culture works on Thermopylae, which adapt the legend to the concerns of the 20th and 21st centuries. The first Hollywood treatment of the battle was a 1962 production titled The 300 Spartans, directed by Rudolf Mate, filmed with the full cooperation of the Greek government, which provided two battalions of the Hellenic army to serve as Xerxes's host. The 300 Spartans is a classic sword and sandal epic, full of melodramatic dialogue and lavish battle scenes. Yet, it is also a work of the Cold War confrontation between the West and the Soviet bloc, which was then at its height. Running through the entire film is the theme of a fight for freedom and democracy against despotic tyranny. This is driven home at the movie's end, when a voiceover and text crawl began with the famous epitaph of Simonides, and concludes with, But it was more than a victory for Greece. It was a stirring example to free people throughout the world, of what a few brave men can accomplish once they refuse to submit to tyranny. One of the most avid fans of the 300 Spartans was a six-year-old named Frank Miller. As an adult, Miller would become one of the most celebrated ever comic book artists and writers. But this is how he describes the effect on him of the 300 Spartans. I went and sat down and watched the end of the movie, and the course of my creative life changed, because all of a sudden, the heroes weren't the guys who get the medal at the end of Star Wars. They're people who do the right thing. Damn the consequences. 
1999, Miller, in collaboration with the colorist Lynn Varley, created what he still considers the crown jewel of his career, a comic book series on the Battle of Thermopylae titled simply 300. It was instantly recognized as a masterpiece, winning the most prestigious awards in comics. Miller made a number of artistic choices to make 300 work as an action comic. One was in the way he depicted the Spartans. Because the Hopelight panoply would have rendered his characters indistinguishable from each other and made dynamic comic book-style action sequences impossible, Miller decided to render his Spartans armed with Corinthian helmet, spear, and shield, but otherwise naked except for what many have called a leather speedo. In other crucial respects, Miller's work is notable for its historical veracity. He clearly absorbed the ancient sources on the battle, notably Herodotus. Yet Miller also updated the legend by injecting into it his own politics and ideologies. Herodotus had portrayed the wars between the Greeks and Persians as a clash of civilizations, with the Greeks representing the ideal of a free citizen in an autonomous polis and the Persians standing for subordination under despotism. But it was never just a simple Manichaean division of light versus darkness. The Greeks could act in vicious, stupid, and cowardly ways, while the Persians could behave with intelligence, courage, and humanity. In 300, Miller banishes all such nuance. The Spartans, or at least Leonidas and his Hopelites, are always outstandingly courageous and honorable. The Persians, irredeemably corrupt and depraved. But his most significant innovation was to cast Spartans as defenders of reason, law, justice, and freedom, while the Persians represent superstition, religious obscurantism, and tyranny. This is absurd for many reasons. The Spartans were, of course, famous among the ancient Greeks for their conspicuous piety. Moreover, Sparta was a militaristic state, based on the systematic oppression and terrorization of its population of Helot subjects. It's ironic, then, that the cause of Greek freedom was championed and sustained by the most unfree Greek polis of them all. In 2007, Frank Miller's comic book masterpiece became a movie directed by Zack Snyder. It features the Scottish actor Gerard Butler as Leonidas leading a cast of bodybuilders. A massive box office hit, the movie 300 is single-handedly responsible for introducing the Thermopylae legend to new generations. Whenever I teach Thermopylae, many of my students quote bits of dialogue from the movie, complete with Gerard Butler's Spartan accent by way of Glasgow. Other than a superfluous and historically baseless subplot involving internal Spartan politics, the movie hews fairly closely to the Frank Miller comic, not just in plot, but in look and comic book style action. The movie has provoked a great deal of argument about its historical accuracy. The Battle Rhino and the so-called uber-immortal have been particularly frequent targets for derisive sniping. Zack Snyder initially tried to defend his work by claiming the events are 90% accurate. It's just in the visualization that it's crazy. I've shown this movie to world-class historians who have said it's amazing. Indeed, Paul Cartledge and Victor Davis Hansen have both stated that the movie does accurately portray the Spartan martial ethos and heroic code. However, I think that historical veracity is rather beside the point when discussing 300. Retreating from his earlier quote, Snyder has characterized his movie as a historical fantasy, and even an opera, not a documentary. 
What I think does matter is the movie's effect on the development of the Thermopylae legend. Snyder takes the ideological themes introduced by Miller and pushes them still further. We see this in two ways. First, Snyder's visuals further exaggerate the religious bigotry and despotism of the Persians. Xerxes is regarded by himself and his subjects as a god-king. He is a giant, but also strangely effeminate, bedecked in rows of gold chains and improbable body piercings. Second, Snyder fills the movie's dialogue with motifs of freedom versus slavery. At the end of the movie, the character Delios gives a rousing speech to the Spartans at Plataea, which begins by quoting the epitaph of Simonides and culminates with the words, This day we rescue a world from mysticism and tyranny, and usher in a future brighter than anything we can imagine. In Snyder's hands, we have certainly come very far from the original Thermopylae legend, much less what actually happened at the Middle Gate in the summer of 480 BCE. The Thermopylae legend has now been part of Western culture for 25 centuries. Yet, for just as long, the legend has had its critics. As we've seen, Herodotus himself did not believe that the Spartans had made the greatest contribution to the defeat of the Persians. That honor belonged to the Athenians. In ending this episode of the podcast, I'd like to add my own small criticism. The Thermopylae legend has been as much about forgetting as remembering. What most recreations of the legend have neglected, and here we can conspicuously include 300 in both its graphic novel and movie forms, is that the 700 thespians made up most of Leonidas's force on the third day of Thermopylae. Little Thespiae contributed its entire hopelight phalanx to the battle, so that its losses in the last stand amounted to 100% as compared to 3% for the Spartans. What's more, the thespians were militiamen. In the Spartan king Agesilaus's derisive terms, they were farmers, shopkeepers, and craftsmen. They are, at least for me, far more relatable and sympathetic figures than the Spartan professional hopelites, products of the brutalizing militarization and regimentation of the Agoge. No thespian mother ever told her son, with it or on it. Yet, they chose to stay. Only in 1997 was a monument to the thespians unveiled at Thermopylae. The story of the battle belongs to them, just as much as it does to the Spartans. This is the end of Thermopylae, the first episode of the Great Battles in History podcast. My name is Daryl D. I produced this podcast with the indispensable assistance of the Laurier Center for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies. I'd like to thank the Center's Company of Immortals, Matthew Morden, Matt Baker, Eric Story, and Kyle Falcon. Thanks also to Great King Mark Humphreys, Director of the Center. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you'll join me for the podcast's next episode, The Battle of Cannae, which will be out later this year.